Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to Redefining Tomorrow. To, today, we're going to be exploring why decentralization is important, and we have an unbelievable guest on the line, Jeffrey Wernick. How are you, Jeffrey? I'm very well, thank you. The How are you, David? Jeffrey's, the reason Jeffrey's on the uh, line today is Jeffrey and I are on a board together, and I was sitting next to him at one of our meetings, and what he was talking about and the way he was talking was absolutely amazing about the concepts that he's drawing from. And when you look him up, he was at his, as a student, he was trading options and futures while he was at the University of Chicago. He studied with Nobel Prize laureates where he secured his PhD. He's been an angel investor. He's been involved in blockchain, biomedical startups. And he was uh, and a very early on investor in Bitcoin, Uber, Airbnb. And every time I've spoken to him, I've been impressed. So I wanted to have Jeffrey on the line. So this is, uh, I'm expecting to have a phenomenal show and I'm expecting to learn a lot from Jeffrey today. So Jeffrey, you have a few bullet points we're going to be covering today. I think that um, some of the bullet points I'd like to discuss is first why Bitcoin matters. Uh, why decentralization is important. I'd like to discuss how I think about decentralization uh, and why these lead into other important topics such as the structure of the economy, uh, fiat money, uh, the political process, uh, governance, not only political but corporate governance, and, uh, and incentive structures. Okay. This is going to be interesting. So let's start with the first one. Explain to me why Bitcoin is important, or why Bitcoin, not the why Bitcoin. Why is why should we be focusing on this? I think if uh, for those who might study uh, monetary history, but me not, it's not just a function of monetary history. If if if, if people were really curious about. Uh, uh, why our government was formed and read the Constitution very, very carefully and what were the debates at the founding of this nation, uh, which was uh, really a great and, uh, experiment at, at, at its time because there was no parallel. Uh, there was no lessons for them to draw on on any country at that point in time other than history, uh, reading uh, you know, great authors, and these people were very scholarly people, the founding fathers, and drawing on the best ideas they could get from the greatest minds throughout history and creating this, this great experiment that's the United States of America. And so if you read the text associated with not just the final constitution, but the whole process of the ratification, the, um, uh, the, the debate over the ratification, which the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, over the extensive amount of Madison's correspondence and Jefferson's correspondence on how we can how we can construct a government that would basically be more about self-government uh, that had some limited that had some limited authority, but really was a was an experiment in self-government and how to construct a society of self-government. So one of the things that the founding fathers, when they if you look at a lot of the correspondence between them, um, was that one of the things that they thought in order for a government not to be corrupted important thing was not to let banking interests get powerful, and the way of not having banking interests get powerful is to not have any discretion with respect to the production of money. Uh, so at the founding of the country, 
there were a lot of currencies in circulation, and the government was actually not allowed to mint money. Uh, the currency that was the most prevalent in circulation was a dollar, but it wasn't a U.S. dollar. It was a Spanish mill dollar, and it was a silver coin. Uh, and it was broken up into eights, which is why initially when stocks traded, they traded in eights to represent the fact that the silver dollar is divided into what's called pieces of eights or eights. So, um, and the initial part of the debate of the country was they figured that, that the government should do really as little as possible. Uh, one of the main reasons why the executive, the, the, the constitution, um, uh, came about was because of the debt that the, uh, that was owed, uh, after the, um, after the revolution, uh, and how to consolidate that debt, but also not have too powerful of an, of, of an, of an executive. And, um, you know, after what some people thought of the Articles of Confederation. And I think what most people don't study the ratification process was, is that there was not an overwhelming support for the Constitution. There was a lot of trepidation about the fact that once you, once you create a government, the problem that the government would more often to be, have more tyranny over time. And there's extensive writings on, you know, in the Federalist Papers about why they thought they were designing a system that had sufficient checks and balances, you know, that would make sure that the government would never morph into something, you know, like it's morphed into today. Um, so, as a matter of fact, if you read almost all of Jefferson's writings, you know, if, if Jefferson was alive today, you know, he'd, create, he'd probably be calling for, you know, a revolution. And, um, and so, uh, I think, I think if you take a look at the intrusiveness of the British government, that caused people to complain about uh, the, the, the that the, that caused the monarchy to lose uh, credibility and legitimacy in front of the thirteen colonies. I probably would say, if you look at today, the U.S. government is more oppressive to its citizens and violates more individual and civil liberties than the British monarchy was doing to the uh, uh, to the people living in the thirteen colonies at the time. So. Um, so, so Jeffrey, you you actually have gone back, and this is I, I'm smiling as you're going going through this. You've read all these papers to see. I mean, is it you? Is it you? A real history buff like this, where you've gone from Jefferson's papers and you've you've looked at the the conflict about the uh, the all of the documents we've spoken about. You've actually read all of these yourself. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. I'm, I'm actually very impressed because you, there's probably a lot to draw from just educationally besides this one set of uh, how the government was formed. But I, I, I've never heard any of this before. No, I've, 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 just, I've been reading it for 40 years. So it's been it's a fascinating topic for me. And I've looked for as much of original sourcing of correspondence between as many people who were involved during the period of time that was prior to the revolution, uh, you know, the debates leading up to people accepting, uh, you know, that the Continental Congress was formed and, you know, the debate over the, uh, production of the, of the, of the, of the Declaration of Independence, uh, and then the whole revolutionary period and then the period of the Articles of Confederation and then what triggered the debate between, you know, uh, basically uh, moving away from the articles to a constitution, and even the correspondence uh, between 
Uh, well, Jefferson was a great writer and wrote a lot of letters to a lot of people, and including those he wrote after he left office. So for and and Madison left his notes from the convention as well as other people left a significant paper trail. Uh, you know, when we when we think about blogging there, you know, when people used to uh, go to hang out in saloons prior to the revolution, you know, that people were reading, you know, Tom Paine's work, you know, on common sense. Uh and that's what they would debate in the saloons is, you know, basically uh whether uh, the monarchy was treating the colonies fairly or not fairly, and whether the so whether the colonies should declare its independence, and what was even the basis of the legitimacy for the colonies claiming they had the right to do it, uh, and you know, in the citations of natural law, uh, we're one of the few constitutions around the world that really cite natural law. We're in the few constitutions anywhere that say man's rights derive from nature, not from government. Many other countries have established constitutions, but ultimately the rights are defined by uh, by the government, as opposed to we saying that rights derive from nature and no government's legitimate that that basically violates rights that we are endowed by nature and by our creator, whoever you believe that creator is. So ours is a very very unusual document. There was a book written. Did they call it an experiment? Was that a, a word that was used? Uh, I think I think to the extent that they thought it was an experiment, to the extent that you know initially to take a look at it, you know, one is within within two years of the uh, of the execution of the Constitution, you know, we already had passed the Bill of Rights, and in the early years, it was very common that it was amended. So they they they, they so they wrote a document that they understood that it was a framework. And to modify that framework, they wanted a supermajority to be able to authorize that framework. So they created a framework that would be flexible, but not flexible the way we see flexible today, which is basically not getting the consent of the governed. But now we go to, you know, nine Supreme Court justices and we want them to read the, we want judicial fiat, you know, to basically, we're, we're basically governed now by philosophy. So the Supreme Court, you know, from either you know, from either the left or the right, they all like to rewrite the Constitution. So they're all, um, uh, you know, they're all, uh, you know, political people, and uh, you know, they all want to rewrite the Constitution. And 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 in the past, we used to have constitutional amendments when people felt the Constitution wasn't adequately addressing, you know, certain issues. And uh, so, uh, you know, we didn't have much of a bureaucracy. We didn't have an administrative state. I think I think we deviated so much from what uh, was a limited government, uh, and basically any significant change needed basically the consent of the people. And now we have very significant changes that can be done that don't require the the consent of the people. And we basically, to some extent, have we either have we have we either go for mob rule, you know, where we're an unruly mob, even if it's not a majority. Can basically have significant influence, you know, or we have the corruption of, you know, by either teachers unions, labor unions, or corporations, or any group, you know, that, you know, it's a public choice school that figures out that if they can, if they can have very concentrated benefits and diffuse that course over a lot of people, uh, and they can help influence the political process, you know, that they're very, that they're very, I, to me, it's perverse that, that Washington as the most expensive real estate in the country now, 
and has expensive real estate in the country now because people think there's a lot of value to lobbying government. So influencing the political process is a huge business. People get paid a lot of money to do it, and they, and they get big salaries to do it. And that's why they live in near around Washington. And that's why Washington's real estate is worth so much because it's a, because it's a huge business to influence government. And ultimately about influencing government is about, is about a process where somebody says, I want to be a winner and I want somebody else to be a loser as a consequence of me winning. And when you study economics and you study, you know, micro theory, one of the things, you know, uh, you, 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 it's covered in something called Pareto optimality. And, it, and, 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 gov- and economists are supposed to be governed by this concept of Pareto optimality in the sense that, that it's supposed to not be about making value judgments. You know, professionals don't make value judgments. Society comes up with its own mechanism for determining its own values through whatever process that people consent to on how they make those judgments. And Pareto optimality basically states is that, you know, you should not make a change in policy, uh, if it makes some people better off at the expense of others. That basically something is Pareto optimal if you make people better off without making anybody else worse off. So I think we have almost no government policy that makes everybody, somebody better off with, with nobody else being worse off. Yeah. So you have people making, yeah, people making trade-offs and people deciding winners and losers. And the, and, and the, and the, and the more at stake, the more people will invest in making sure they are the winner. So we have, so we, we, so it's no longer about Somebody going out there and saying, let me go get the consent of the people and see if the people will agree to this. It's about how do I lobby people in Washington? How do I go behind closed doors? How do I influence administrative bodies? And how do I make sure rules are written to my benefit so nobody notices? And I, and, 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 and this was not, this was not the nation that was founded of, of, you know, of a, of basically that was an exercise in essentially self-government, uh, where we basically said, that rights that were not significantly, that were not explicitly given to the government were retained by the people. Uh, now it seems like the people have very limited rights, uh, and it's, and, and it's only what the government thinks we deserve, and apparently the government thinks we deserve less and less over time, uh, that, uh, that to me this is frightening. And so the, to relate so, this back, so to relate this back to Bitcoin, you know, uh, yeah. what enables this, what enables government to do this is the government basically has unlimited resources. And why does government initially have unlimited resources? It has unlimited resources because it can print money at its will. And it can, and it doesn't matter whether people want that money. You know, they still have the Federal Reserve as a buyer of last resort for all the money the government wants to print. So, um, so the government, if we were basically what I would refer to as an all equity funded government, which is basically a government that was funded only exclusively by tax. And the government had to fund all spending, uh, except like we take a look at like maybe a company. Maybe a government will go out and say, you know, this spending I'm going to pay, I'm going to cover because it's ordinary operating expenses and taxes pay for it. And if I'm going to do any capex, I'll issue a bond, and the bond will be collateralized by whatever the project is, so people know that if the, if the government invests in a good project and they believe in it, they'll buy that bond. But there's no there's no government guarantee behind that project. That whoever buys the bond has to believe that the, the cash flows in the project, you know, will pay for itself. So that way, that 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 is essentially consent. Consent is whatever the government does, p- people are willing to agree to it and willing to pay for it. So if government does think that people don't really consent to it, 
and are not willing to pay for it, governments shouldn't be doing. So right now, I would say the government is doing a lot of things that people don't really consent to and don't really want to pay for. But they think, you know, when I when I got to the University of Chicago and I walked into you know the uh, the dorm uh, and I went to the little coffee shop in the door, there was a little sign there that said Tanzka. And so I asked, you know, what what it's good for, and and it's something that you know is basically no Friedman's famous for saying is there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. What politicians sell is the free lunch, uh, is the illusion that there is a free lunch, that there's no consequences associated with any of this. So I think I think that's just uh, I just think that's wrong. So how how do we make okay, so, sure? So if we were if we were to tie that to Bitcoin, what is how the... do we how do we make sure that the government is constrained from from that whatever it does eat the consent of the people? So before Bitcoin, I was somebody who believed in gold. And, and, if, and if money is backed by gold, then essentially what you have is the government has no discretion in, 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 in monetary policy. And, uh, and that also means that if the government issues too much debt, people won't want to hold that currency and they'll exchange it for gold like we had during, you know, the Bretton Woods, which was a quasi gold standard. Uh, we, you know, prior to, the creation of the Fed through the 19th century, we only had a very short experience in paper money, and that was during the Civil War, and that was the only time we really experienced any inflation. From 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 the beginning of from the from the from 1800 to 1900, you know, basically the there was a there was a minor deflation. So prices on average were a little lower at 1900 than they were in 1800, and we should expect that we should expect inflation because ultimately, as a society gets more productive then everything should become cheaper because we get better at making whatever we're making. Um, and that's what creates wealth is us getting more productive. And that's what makes workers better off is them becoming more productive. So money being becoming more productive, but workers less productive, concentrates wealth to the financial sector. Uh, and that occurs when financial engineering is profitable. And financial engineering is profitable when you have, a, when you have fiat money and big deficits and no restraints on on, on debt. The financial sector so, was so, small. So I want to stop you for just I want to Jeffrey, Jeffrey. I want to stop you for just one moment because I want to hear your definition of fiat money. That's not going to be a word. That's a, a common word. Well, fiat money is basically money backed by nothing. And we went money. The, the U.S. There used to be pretty much a requirement that whatever money was out in circulation was back collateralized by gold. Um, and prior to, and that's what caused the U.S. to move off the gold standard, is because in 1971, whoever was holding dollars had the right to say, I'm going to give you my dollars and you got to give me gold. And the expectation was it was almost like a demand deposit. Whoever didn't want to hold dollars could go and say, I, you know, I, I want a dollar. Here's the dollar. Give me the gold. And if the government would have said, sorry, I have no gold, then the government would have defaulted on its obligation. And the currency would collapse. So when 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 the French, when the gold didn't want to hold dollars anymore because we were inflating the economy and they no longer trusted the dollar, uh, then they asked to say we don't want to hold dollars anymore. They went to Nixon and said either either put your fiscal house in order or we're going to dump all our dollars and uh, and we want gold. And Nixon said nope, we're shutting the gold window down. No one can convert any more to gold. 
So, and that began the debasement of Al. Of, of, of a significant debasement. Of, of, and, and it's surprising who you, you who the person was who was involved in it. Uh, uh, so, so, so let and yes, but, but, I know. But, but, and, it, and people also don't link to the fact is that at the same time, almost almost at the exact same time that Nixon basically said no to converting gold, and that's when Connolly. Uh, was I think the, the Treasury Secretary at the time. This is the Treasury or Commerce Secretary. He made the same comment to the Europeans. He said, "It's our currency, but it's your problem." Um, so that was the response to no longer making it convertible back into gold, which was the monetary regime established in, in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, after after World War II. And then that's when uh, uh, Kissinger and um, and Bill Simon, oh Simon was the Treasury Secretary at the time, yes. Yeah, Enough to be the Commerce Secretary went to went to Saudi Arabia, and that's when the petrodollar was created. Prior to '71, you know, basically the oil producing countries, whoever they sold oil to, they would sell oil to basically that currency that they felt convertible, and they basically were looking to stabilize it relative to the purchasing power with respect to gold. And um, and so then that's when Kissinger and Simon went to the Saudis and said, you know, get convince everyone that all the oil-producing countries should invoice exclusively in dollars. And that way, a lot of countries, since basically it's a fossil fuel-based economy, and the Saudis were the biggest exporters uh, in the world in oil, and then they were able to form a block with the other producing nations that we were happy about, um, then they should basically enforce the uh, invoicing of, of petrol, of oil, you know, just in dollars, and that's just the creation of the petrol dollars. And basically, so when 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 I I tell people that when they think that we're that we're in the Middle East because of oil, you know, right now we're we're, we're energy independent, so we're not in the Middle East because of oil. You know, we're in the Middle East because of petrol dollars. We still we still want as many countries to hold and not dump dollars, and so we it's still relevant to us that whatever that whatever invoice whatever oil is sold. That is sold exclusively in dollars. Now there's been a weakening of that, and now some of the oil is being sold in euros, and some, you know, in RMB in small quantities. But ultimately, what we wanted to do is force a disproportionate amount of holdings of reserves of foreign countries in dollars, so they don't dump dollars, so our dollar doesn't collapse, and we enter into a very high inflation, you know, or or, or a very weak economy. So all of this is because of the fiat money system. Is because our money is backed by nothing other than the belief, other than the belief that the actors responsible for managing our economic policy will act responsibly. And there's actually zero indication that they act responsibly. One of the so one, why, one, so one so form of why the that, Bitcoin? Let's take the jump just because of timing. Why? Why the Bitcoin? Why Bitcoin is the is the premise at this point? Well, it's Bitcoin, Bitcoin to me, once I, once I read the Satoshi White Paper, it, 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 it clearly to me was a better form of, 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 of money than, than gold. And I'll tell you what the attributes to me that make Bitcoin are, are better, better than, better than gold. I mean, gold, you still have mining companies go out there. They operate in very corrupt countries around the world. There's a lot of political risk associated with mining. Uh, there's some attributes that, uh, so, so that's, that's not very, very appealing. Uh, my gold is not affordable. Gold is, gold is expensive, it's expensive to store. 
Gold really cannot be broken down into very, very small units. Um, so, and has really very, very high storage costs. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, so when, when the, when the, when you look at the, how, you know, the ecosystem for, for Bitcoin, there's so many things to me that are appealing about it. One is this is no controlling authority. Satoshi, whoever Satoshi is, wrote a protocol. The protocol was a framework of different incentive mechanisms and, uh, and basically whoever like quote mines bitcoins, uh, everybody does it voluntarily. So there's no, there's no controlling authority directly any attribute of any activity within the Bitcoin ecosystem. There are just, there's just a framework of rules and people think, people believe in that framework of rules. And to some extent, some of those rules are kind of, are kind of consistent with how you can think about gold. There's a certain amount of gold that gets produced over time. You know, typically gold mines have a reducing rate of production over time. Bitcoin has a reducing amount of, of, of Bitcoins produced over time. And ultimately that all, all the mines would be depleted. And so ultimately Bitcoin will stop producing new coins. So but that's very far into the future. Um, so Bitcoin, the last Bitcoin is expected to be mined in 2140. Uh, you know, still more than a hundred years from now. And, you know, I assume that within the next hundred years, if people ask me, you know, what, what will happen to Bitcoin in 2140? And I, I like to say it's probably there'll be some other innovation, you know, that will render Bitcoin irrelevant and we'll come up with maybe even a different way or better way of doing it. But that's a hundred ways off, hundred years off. So, and there's even a system on how we motivate people to continue mining to preserve the ledger, uh, even though they're not producing Bitcoin. Now, to the extent that there's so much Bitcoin in circulation, that that essentially those that are circulating Bitcoin will be willing to compensate the miners to have the incentive to continue to preserve the ledger. If not, they won't be able to circulate the Bitcoins that have been accumulated. So I think the whole design of Bitcoin creates such a beautiful set of system of incentives uh, that has encouraged a lot of people to participate in the ecosystem and all its growth has been organic. And what I like to say when I, you know, when I talk about Bitcoin is it has no author, it has no controlling authority, it has no marketing budget, it has no marketing team. No one ever raised money to do a project. It just was a protocol that was in, that was, that was, that was published somewhere. One individual began mining, or one group began mining, and other people began mining. And so the whole ecosystem is, it has evolved on its own without anybody directing. Uh, and, uh, and it's created a significant amount of value along the way. And now people continue to be incentivized to build things on top of it, even in a market where Bitcoin went from its high of almost 20,000 in December of 2017 to about 3,800 today. Also keeping in perspective that in the beginning of 2017, it was a thousand. So it's still almost four times where it was in 2017, which is not bad, but it is significantly off its high. And in spite of the fact that it's significantly off its high, there's been a significant amount of incremental investment to building a better ecosystem for Bitcoin. And what do I mean is to make the cost of transferring it cheaper, easier for it to hold. And because that's another one that actually did a lot is the cost of storage is very low. If you can store it on your phone, you can store it on the hard drives, you can store it on your computer. You can store them with something that's equivalent to an external hard drive, uh, and you keep possession of it if you want to keep possession of it. 
it's, it's, it can't be confiscated. Right now, Bitcoin is what's called pseudonymous, which means basically whoever you transact with, the parties don't really know each other. But ultimately, somebody, some governmental authority will have the ability to track you uh, with whatever hacking methods you have. They won't be able to hack your, your Bitcoin. They can't hack the blockchain, but they can figure out identities. So, but, right, but on some of the evolution working on Bitcoin is so that the government even can't figure out identity. So I think Bitcoin in a couple of years will not just be pseudonymous, will be a number that we will be able to transact with each other and as, you know, as we should have the right to, uh, without being monitored. I mean, years in the 19th century, you know, value was, we had no income tax. The government had no reason to monitor what anybody was doing, except when somebody made a complaint and broke the law. And if somebody committed fraud in transactions, they would suffer the consequences of the fraud they committed on transactions because transactions were governed by a contract. You know, the, 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 um, the blockchain ecosystem is governed by smart contracts. So there is still contract when there's not simultaneous exchange. So this is a this is a system that is completely self-organized, and 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 the rules are immutable. So you can trust the immutability of the rules. So if you like the rules, you know they're not going to change. And if you, if you think somebody's really good at writing rules, and you want to basically delegate authority to their rule writing capacity, you can move off of Bitcoin into another cryptocurrency where somebody says, "I write the rules, and I write better rules, and trust me." So trust my ability to write better rules. But the point of it is that you can enter and exit at your own free will. So ultimately, every individual can determine which is the best operating system, which is the best governing structure, and which is the best rules. And the market's making a judgment about how people are allocating, you know, between various cryptocurrencies, you know, their, their bet on which rules they think are the ones that they want to live on. That they think are and from, and from the your pers- and your perspective and from your perspective, the Bitcoin is their rules are the rules that you feel are the the strongest. Uh, I think most of the other cryptocurrencies are all basically trying to build ecosystems. Like Ether is an Ether is Ethereum is 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 an infrastructure. So Ethereum is looking to build an infrastructure where people put apps and other things on and people build fintech. So Bitcoin is money. So if you're just thinking about something that today just basically functions as what I think is the best form of money, uh, is, and when people think about money in the form it is, money takes various forms because if you take a look at, if we have various monetary aggregates, you know, and the, and the aggregates composed of demand deposits, uh, you know, time deposits, certificates of deposits, you know, treasury bills. So we have, so some money is used for consumption purposes and some money is used for saving purposes. If you look at the broadest monetary aggregate, about one third of money is used for consumption spending and two thirds is used for savings. You know, ultimately it's savings and wealth, savings is wealth accumulation. You know, savings is we, we set money aside today so we can consume even more tomorrow. Um, if you take a look at like the fiat system that the, that the, that one, 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 the famous economist, uh, in the seventies, uh, named many people don't know, but, but he was a close advisor of Paul Volcker, uh, a guy named John Exter. Uh, when we went off, when we went off Bretton Woods, uh, he called, uh, the fiat money, I or you nothing. And I think that's probably the best description I heard. 
of uh, of fiat money as IOU methods. So right now, um, you know, so and and since I think that that system has been you know completely uh, debased, but right now people don't want any money. To, if you look at the bank and governments. They want all money flowing through the bank. They don't want currency in circulation. They don't want people to exchange anything in the absence of government to be able to monitor it. So in other words, the assumption is we're all criminals. Uh, and the government wants to follow it all because they want it to either assume we're a criminal doing an activity that they don't like or that we're not, we're a criminal because we're not, where the government is not taking all the tax dollars it wants to take from you. You know, in the 19th century, there was no income tax. And the government basically let, let, let people decide what commerce was legitimate and just make sure that whatever contract people were signed to, you know, they complied by the terms and agreement of, 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 of their contract. And we had, a, we had a lot of prosperity in the 19th century. We had more prosperity in the 19th century than we've had in the 20th century. Uh, so if you look at the changes of standard of living from where we started and, you know, and, and, and where we, we've ended up. Uh, and, uh, in the last, and the last, with all the technology we've had, with all the financial engineering and all the debt we've had, uh, this last 15, 20 year period of time, we've had the, the slowest growth of productivity over a protracted period of time. So here everybody talks about all this amazing technology that we have. So we have all these PhDs, all this amazing tech, accumulating all this debt, and essentially we're not growing our productivity. What we're doing is we're channeling a lot of money into making hedge fund managers, bankers, and financial engineering the most profitable business in the world. So, we're, so instead of us becoming a more productive society, what we're what we're the incentive is is how how do we make more profit out of financial engineering, which as a society and makes us all worse off, except for the people inside the financial engineering business which is why the percentage of profits it has is the percentage of GDP and the size of the GDP keeps growing. And even when they mess up, we, we come in and we bail them out with very little consequence for them. So it's very, very perverse, the whole system. And I think the only way, the only way to change the system of having a limited government and re and empowering people again is by recontrolling money. We can't give much control of money to any government. We have to take that away. If we take that money away, government now is accountable to us. If we give it to if we give the government the ability to do this, then they control money, uh, then they control us, right? And they have no sense of accountability to us. So the only hope we have of making government accountable to us is basically we control money, the production of money, and the distribution of money. So, so let's let's take a jump to this. Uh, why decentralization is important? So decentralization is important because ultimately, as the expression is, when power corrupts, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So, what do you have? Is we have centralization leads to more centralization, and ultimately, it means that we have fewer choices. We have more constraints posed on us, and essentially, the more hierarchical we are. It means that impacts our bargaining power. So a lot of times when we're negotiating, you know, transactions in a, in a hierarchical framework, ultimately those on top have all the bargaining leverage. So they can extract more value, not because they're contributing more value, but because they have more bargaining power. So a lot, a lot of the allocation of value is, is, is solely a function of 
the talking about. It's not about who, it's not about what your contribution is to, is to, is to the value creation process. It's how much bargaining power do you have to extract a significant amount given what you've contributed. So in, in, in a decentralized world, where basically things are relatively flat, that means that, that means disparities in bargaining power are significantly lower, which means that the which means that the allocations would probably be uh, I don't want to use the term fairer, but probably would be more reflective of the of what each party contributes to the process because no one party would be able to extract that much significant value uh, because they just have the power to do it independent of whether they have the um uh you know e- e- independent of whether they really contribute that incremental value i remember for example one time you know when i was doing uh, uh, a real estate project the funds wanted to uh, sponsor me and sign a long-term deal with me and they were negotiating a deal and they wanted to negotiate a long-term deal and so i told them i said you know what the type of deal you're negotiating with me today you know basically is you're negotiating because you're big and you think I need what you have and that basically you can get a bigger bargain because what you have is harder for me to find. And so you're extracting more value than it's harder to find, even if ultimately, even if ultimately the value creation process is more about what I contributed than what you contributed, even if the end of the value is more a function of my human capital than your money, your money is going to get a disproportionate amount of the returns because you think that's scarcer than finding my capital. So I said, basically, I don't think that's true. I know you can find a million developers out there and we just can agree to not do a deal. I have to tell you this. If I do a deal with you and my deal works out much better than your other developers, I have to tell you the first thing I'm going to be looking to doing is based upon your incentive, your theory, because your theory is might makes right. So if I basically come out and I do a couple of projects and they're super successful, okay, now I know that a lot of people are chasing me. I'll go to you and I'll say, now I have the power because I've demonstrated my projects are very successful, and now I'm scarcer than what you have, so whatever deal we've signed is irrelevant to me, because what you've established is the relationships are just about power. So today you had the power, tomorrow I might have the power. So if basically every relationship is just about power, relative power can change, and then that would change the outcome of the negotiations. So, um, you know, so basically I just said, I just told them to go to hell, and, and ultimately they ended up Ultimately, they came back to me and offered me a very significantly better deal. And, uh, um, and they ended up proving to be terrible partners. So I only did one deal with them and, uh, and, 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 and that was it. But, um, but, but I think the point of it is that really, you know, in, 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 if you take a look at like, if you think of look at like platforms like you now Twitter and Facebook that are censoring everybody, you know, in the beginning when they were small platforms looking to scale, they, everyone who came up to the platform they loved. You know, they greeted you with open arms, you know, very, very nice. You could do anything that you wanted to. They were promoting everything because then they had no bargaining power. Then they're trying to convince people to enter the platform. So they were very welcoming. Okay. Now that everybody's on their platform, you know, now they're, now they're very punitive because they know you don't have many options. You keep, you have, you have weak bargaining power with them. So they can extract a lot more value. Okay, not because they're producing more value today. It's just because they have bargaining power now, because they scale. So they go, you, you give them all your information, okay, and they take all the information, and more and more you give them more information. And their biggest, the most valuable thing they have to offer people, you produce. They don't produce it. 
They just build a little something where you can where you put it there, and then they take it and they figure out how to monetize it. So they're monetizing all our human capital, and they're and they're privatizing the benefits of all the human capital that people are contributing to these platforms because no individual has any significant bargaining power, and they have bargaining power. So it means basically is you get you get to you get a very small value relative to what you've contributed because look at look at the look at the market cap of these companies. These market caps are huge. And what these people are marketing, what these people market is your information. So if they, if, if, if they really looked at what the cost of maintaining their infrastructure is and started charging people a subscription service and then basically said, we're going to distribute, you know, 90% of the value to all the people, you know, you would find that for a small subscription, people would end up getting much better off in the value that they're getting in paying a small subscription. So they people don't really understand what the value proposition they're contributing, and they have no bargaining power. So, so most of our outcomes are basically about just absence of bargaining power. So in decentralization, that basically disappears. Very few people will have the capacity of building a platform where they're in the rent extraction business, because if you build a platform in your rent extraction business, and it's easy to exit that platform and go somewhere else, then you essentially have no more bargaining. Uh, you know, which is why, like other platforms have attempted to, like you can sit back and say, if you look at the, between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Cash had people that got significant benefits from trying to fork off Bitcoin. They basically wanted to have the miners have more power. Uh, they, they claimed the point was to have it faster to transact by creating bigger block sizes. So if it was bigger block size, you could transact faster, but the consequence of bigger block sizes would be is that there'd be more economies of scale in mining, so that you would need you would need more money to contest existing mining operations. So it would make the incumbent miners more powerful, and it would deter new entry of miners into the business. So that failed. It failed because the people understood I don't want to operate in a system where I'm ultimately giving other people bargaining power ultimately. And so the, the rules today basically establish. Many industries have very significant bargaining power. There was a study done by a few economists at the University of Chicago that was recently published in the, uh, was a working paper in the National Bureau of Economic Research that said by quantitative easing, um, has, um, has, has produced, uh, actually a reduction in, in productivity and, uh, and an increase in, 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 in equality. So you gotta believe the Fed understands they're not stupid people that are running the Fed. Uh, so we, ha- we have a policy that basically, and that's why we're seeing, you know, so much of uh, movement towards the I mean, support of either progressive nationalists or progressive socialists or national populists, you know, or the various movements that are non-mainstream movements because people have lost faith and hope in the establishment in the mainstream. This current system for allocating value and allocating you know, both political value and economic value, how we're valued as human beings and how we're valued as economic agents has basically made everybody feel disenfranchised economically and politically. We need, we need a new economic model. We need a new governance model. We need new incentive models. Anyone who should look at the outcomes we have in the world today and say that the current status quo is success, okay, uh, and that this is the best we can do as a society, uh, that, that to me would be very distressing.
I don't think anybody if we can come up with any criteria of saying what the success is and say what we have today is, is a success. It's, it's, so it's a failure. Have, just for the sake of time, we had two points, and I think you've kind of merged some of them already. How to think about it and then what this leads to. So how do you want to to pull this all together? Because we've we've understood how the Bitcoin was formed or the original papers. We've then went to the Bitcoin. We're now talking about decentralization. How would you like to to bring this all together? So we, we walk away or I walk away because I want to walk away understanding what you see uh, moving forward and how I, I think the you, you threw something out the other day, for example, uh, what if countries had no borders and they couldn't want that you could go anywhere you wanted except for being in jail or something to that? I don't want to go over because it's your story. But how do we want to tie this all together so that I get I get a full picture? So if you if you if you, if you, if you if, right now, there's a lot of talk about people adopting, you know, what will be a global currency. Uh, if you see a lot of the debates in many parts of the world, the refugee issues, the national populace. And the debate between globalism and populism, I always felt that to some extent, I always said is it's very, you know, for me, it's, very, it's, it's kind of easy to solve the government's problem. You know, as long as it's a free flow of people and we make, if we make geographies pretty much irrelevant, if every country basically said we're going to open our border and we're going to let people come and go as they want, except for the fact that they have a criminal record and in jail, you know, if they're criminals in jail, they have to maintain incarcerated. And once they've served their time, then they can go anywhere. But if you're a criminal and incarcerated, you can incarcerated wherever jurisdiction that incarcerated you. But as long as you're not incarcerated, you can go anywhere you want to go. And then ultimately, any area that had bad governance, would, as long as they can't coerce the people to stay, people would not stay. And everybody would move towards areas that had good governance. And we would continue to move where we ever, where we found the best opportunities and the best governance. And that to me is basically what cryptocurrencies are about and what blockchain is about and Bitcoin is about. You know, so Bitcoin becomes the currency that we all transfer value with because we trust it, because we know there's no controlling authority and no one can mutate it. And so we trust the fact that no no authority can debase it, can do anything, can change its nature or attributes of character, you know, and then and and, and it flows seamlessly across borders. Geography becomes irrelevant. And the whole point about blockchain also is Geography is irrelevant. Identity is irrelevant. Nationality is irrelevant. Religious, religious or any, any, however you identify yourself, you know, gender wise, religious wise, uh, nationality wise, cultural wise, all becomes irrelevant in this space. The only thing, the only thing that's relevant is our people exchanging value in a way that they each mutually agree upon. And so it's a world devoid of prejudices. It's a, it's a world devoid of any barrier that's artificial in nature. Borders are artificial. They're enforced by arms. So the blockchain world is a completely voluntary world. That basically we operate where we think we have the best opportunity to prosper and thrive. And that's what, that's what we should aspire to mankind. I don't, I don't, I'm not a globalist in the sense that I want to build, uh, you know, a, a, a Brussels, you know, that governs all of us. You know what? I'm a, I'm a globalist in the world. You know that we're all human beings that live on the planet, and that we should understand that every border is just artificial. It's man-made, and the only thing that enforces it is power. And that 
that relationships, nobody really likes relationships with power. One of the, you know, I, one of the things, example, things I've also said several times, which I, it's just something I feel like, is I, I was in, you know, in high school, I loved playing basketball. I played on the ba- basketball team in school and I played in the park, in the parks all the time. You know, and I, I always, when I always ask my friends, I said, you know what? Which do you prefer better? Do you, do you, do you have more fun playing in the park or on the team? I said, I know the status from being on the team. You know, you wear the jacket, the girl, the cheerleaders show up. So I know this is a status and you like the status of sort of But forget about the status. Ask me for the status, which is more enjoyable. In the park or on the, uh, you know, or, or, in, or in the school. Everybody says the park is more fun. Then I asked him another question. When, when you play, I, when you play and we play amongst ourselves, we're calling fouls with ourselves. Do you think that you, I do generally think at the end of the game, it's we've had a fairer game than when a referee gets rested, a professional referee. Which do you think has a better game of how we call fouls? Us calling it and periodically arguing with each other or an authority figure determining what's a foul or not foul? All my, all the people I played basketball with said not only did they have more fun playing on a court where we just organized ourselves, but ultimately they thought the outcome was fairer and that they preferred self-governing calling fouls over an authority to be calling fouls. Then I had something else. How many of us have played kind of regularly together? How many of you think we're better with or without a coach? And almost all of my people said, we think we play better without a coach than we do with a coach. So ultimately, we have an authority figure refereeing a game that produces an outcome that we think is less fair with a coach that doesn't make us any better, okay? And we have less fun. You know, I think most people in their lives prefer peer relationships than hierarchical relationships. And so I think for us as a society, I think the best thing is, is how do we figure out how we can organize ourselves in a voluntary basis where more relationships are about peers dealing with peers than any sense of hierarchy. And when you have the, and I think if we have a system where basically people could go wherever they wanted to go and people just found the, you know, country, you know, and the geography where they said, this is going to be our operating system and governance structure. I'm, I'm very confident that the system that would win would be having the lowest level of hierarchy. That would, that so, would so give people the maximum that, ability and, of freedom. And uh, I understand the whole, the, I love the basketball analogy and I love the country analogy that we had spoken about earlier. The, the, or the situation that you had developed. Mike, the, where in, in the next 10 minutes, What's your projection of how this is going to play out? Do you let me hear your projection? Well, my, my projection is that ultimately fiat money will fail. Um, that government is putting in place a lot of means of uh, more more effective controls over repressing us. Uh, I think the repressing the the repression will succeed short term, uh, but not long term. Uh, I think that uh, whatever the government... A dark ages of 100 years, or is this going to turn over in in uh, uh, a, a decade? A decade. I think given the technology we have today and given people's capacity to innovate and given how the in- infrastructure of like Bitcoin is building out, given all the work being done in cryptography and and and, and uh and people being able to be anonymous and be able to exchange and making borders irrelevant. I think the technology in making borders irrelevant is advancing faster than the technology of repression. 
So, um, uh, you know, so in that respect, I'm an optimist. I'm optimist that, that, that there are a lot of smart people that kind of understand the circumstances, that are worried about the circumstances, and are committed to building an infrastructure, you know, in anticipation of, 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 of these events. So I think the I think the amount of effort going into building out the infrastructure, you know, to basically being anti-fragile, you know, no matter what government attempts to do, that basically, as many people say, Bitcoin's unstoppable. You know, I believe that. I think I think that this movement is an unstoppable movement, and every time there's incremental uh, repression uh, or further signs of fragility in money, it's just going to convert more people who want to be able to contribute. Uh, to a system that began on the concept of proof of work, that what you can contribute had nothing to do with how much money you had, but the value of your contribution to supporting the ecosystem. In the beginning of so, Bitcoin... So let's, take, so let's take the 7.5 billion people on this planet. Give me a quick roadmap of how that would convert so that there's not the haves and the haves-nots the way I think at least I, to some degree, after today, I see it a little bit differently. How is that conversion going to happen? Because I see haves and haves nots just in Bitcoin. Well, I think, I think, uh, I think there'll be, well, I don't think there's any magic solution to all the have nots. I mean, so places where there's bad education, very corrupt government, people who have access to almost nothing, that Bitcoin molasses is not going to solve this problem. Now, if there were ad drops, you know, in, into some of these, into some of these communities. You know, I, I, I'm, I've been speaking to trying to find platforms that would go to underdeveloped countries and just stop doing airdrops of small amounts of, you know, give people phones with a, with a very, you know, with a wallet of a small amount of Bitcoin, you know, less than one Bitcoin, you know, to be, to get it into the hands of a bunch of people so that Bitcoin explodes in value, um, you know, which I hope it does eventually. Um, you know, I'm, I'm patient and I don't want to explode in value to make money. I want to explode in value because basically it succeeded in being uh, distributed, you know, broadly throughout society that the earlier you move in, you know, the more you profit off of it. So I think there's a possibility of significantly redistributing wealth that the people who are powerful today, when, when the financial system declines, will be weak. You know, all the, all the funds that are levered in real estate, if fiat collapses and their cost of capital goes up, they're all bankrupt. They're going to have all, all the people who invested money in them will be poorer. They'll be poorer. They'll be involved in litigation. So ultimately, by the time fiat fails, you know, then the country, then the type of companies that are big and powerful today won't be big and powerful because the financial circumstances will be significantly less because they all, their, their model is leveraging more cheap money. And once they lose that model, you know, their valuation is very, very different. So they no longer have the power. So the people that have the power are the people that own the Bitcoin, not the people that own, you know, all these, all these businesses. And people own Bitcoin understand that its value is in promoting adoption as universal as possible. It's not 40. Most things we have value by us 40. Bitcoin doesn't become more valuable by you hoarding it. Bitcoin because more powerful by you becoming more broadly distributed. So the so the value creation process is not how I capture as much for myself. It's how do I encourage everyone else to own a piece of it, you know, as opposed to the traditional business model, 
is how do I hoard and hoard and hoard? So the, the traditional model is all about, you know, a very, very, you know, strong competitive process, you know, and Bitcoin is about a more cooperative process. And, the way uh, I, and, and, the way and, I and saw it, maybe, maybe you can clarify this is I saw, I, I've always seen it or the way I've learned about it is that, for example, you're a large Bitcoin holder. If more people adopt the Bitcoin, uh, then you therefore sit in more of a power position because there's more value to your Bitcoin. So it's almost the counterintuitiveness that you're throwing out to me is that by me having more, why wouldn't you be worth more? Are you having more? I will be worth more. But ultimately, if a lot of people have it, it will stop appreciating in value. As adoption grows, during the adoption process, Bitcoin will grow in value. Once adoption is broad, it'll become relatively stable in value. So I will no longer benefit by continuing to hold it. I'll benefit more by distributing it than holding it. And, 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 and most people understand that there was a point in time that I could have, you know, I, I had the net worth, you know, to buy a lot more Bitcoins than I have. Uh, but I didn't want to do that because I ultimately understand the game is about adoption, not hoarding. And so I think very few Bitcoin holders are really hoarders. They're hobbies. They just basically say, whatever I have, I'm keeping, uh, because I believe it's going to be successful. But nobody wants to monopolize ownership because if you monopolize ownership, you make it worthless because nobody's going to accept it in, in, in value if you, if you're a monopoly. That's the whole point of the ecosystem is that if anybody attempts to control it, it loses its value. It doesn't become more valuable. It becomes less valuable. That's the wonderful thing about the incentive structure is, is that whoever attempts to hoard it is damaging the ecosystem because then it discourages for broader adoption. So then you can't use it for anything because when you want to get rid of it, nobody wants it because not, a lot, not enough people believe in it. So if I owned 100% of the Bitcoins, and it went up to a million dollars. And then I said, now I want to sell a few of it. I have no one to sell it to because nobody would pay a million dollars. So the price rise is artificial. You know, you, you, want it, you want it to be a deep, broad market. And uh, so you want, you want adoption to grow. So I'm not, I'm, I don't want to spread Bitcoin so my net worth goes up. It might be, it'll probably be a consequence of that. But I want it to grow because I want other people's net worth to grow up, to go up a lot. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I, and, uh, and I think, you know, how the ecosystem works, you know, going back to, you know, one, one of the points I didn't make in a few minutes is, you know, the importance of, you know, why trust is important and why is it that trustless, meaning you don't have to worry about trust because trust is embedded in the protocol. You know, we, in game theory, when we have a look at the prisoner's dilemma, the best outcome for society is when everybody trusts each other. We produce better when everybody trusts each other. If we build a whole bunch of institutions to, to basically add a lot of transaction costs to us interacting with each other because we don't trust each other very much. So when you build trustless platforms, it basically reduces a significant amount of friction because we, we, we don't have to worry about anybody else doing rent-seeking behavior, you know, or not complying with, you know, whatever their counterparty risk is. So the more we mitigate that, you know, the more we all have better incentive alignment and the better outcome we have. 
Then it's more we win together rather than we win at each other's expense. People much prefer cooperation than competition. People like hanging out with their friends. You know, and most groups that have friends don't have friends who like to compete with each other, then they don't stay friends very long. The greatest, the greatest experience in life with our loved ones and our friends and relationships that appears, you know, where we're cooperating with each other. That's what, that's what, that's what we naturally like. And I think the whole ecosystem. On a, on a philosophical, on a philosophical level, yes. Yet in my experience over the past few years with Bitcoin, or, or any of the cryptocurrencies that I have worked with individuals, I have seen probably more greedy behavior than I have seen in much of the other transactions I've ever heard. I, there's one individual walked in, he had just purchased, or his friend had just purchased at 17, and he was talking about how he's going to party like he's never partied before when it hits 100,000. And I've seen individuals who are working their tails off so that they can they they can make more. I'll give you an example on the uh, on crypto. There's a guy in Shanghai. He's an American. He told me he had thirty five thousand dollars left in his bank account. He had been sleeping on his couch in his office for ten months. He then went ICO. His value was over a hundred million i think it became about a half a billion at one point and i and he had dis decoupled his company from the i from the currency in some way the way he structured it and i said to him well will you ever become profitable and he said no never i've got 35 employees there's no way my company will ever become profitable and those are the stories that i've heard through the asia pacific region and even in the states so uh, when I, I think there's a disconnect between what you're saying and what I, the behaviors I'm, I'm feeling and hearing. Well, the, the behaviors I'm talking about is the Bitcoin, Bitcoin ecosystem. Because people yeah. don't ICO in the Bitcoin ecosystem. So people have not raised money with promises of doing anything. So Bitcoin system is a system predicated upon proof I guess work. I, I should have said, and, I should have prefaced it. That's what I call, you know, and like I say, that's what I call the shitcoin ecosystem. The shitcoin ecosystem is very different. That has a sponsor. That has a sponsor raising projects, raising money, you know, and raising money based upon a document that says, you know, give me $500 million, $10 million, $100 million, you know, this is a piece of paper that says, this is what I might build. And thank you very much. And if I don't build anything, you still have no recourse to me. So I should have so been a little that's, clearer. That's a, very, I, that's a I, very different ecosystem than Bitcoin. Okay, but what I, I should have been a little clearer. What I meant was, with this influence, because I understand the differences between uh, the ICOs and Bitcoin, but with this influence pushing towards the entire uh, the entire new currency system. I think that there's a lot of crossover as to why should I trust the Drapers or why should I trust you when I'm seeing this whole other behavior being uh, demonstrated across platforms. So are you saying that there's another underlying uh, movement 
that says, don't worry about all of this. We're still going to make it as Bitcoin, but this is just noise. Uh, I mean, I believe that it's not that I don't think blockchain has a useful tool. And I don't think and that there's a still significant role for decentralization and blockchain will contribute to that. And I see how blockchain contributes to that something very differently. And I can explain that in a second. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think I think I think what happened is for the first couple of years, the movement was very philosophical in nature. And then it got co-opted by people who just became looking business, just speculative assets. And of course, you can't. If the people should be able to be free to speculate, but the speculators said, you know, the only way I can make money off Bitcoin is buying. You know, how I can make money off cryptocurrency is how can I figure out how I can issue an ICO, write a white paper, so then I then I don't need to write a check. I just need to create a, a narrative that people believe in or write a check. Check on. So, um, uh, you know, I think. That, you know, people might say that the outcome would have been better if there was, if there was regulation. Uh, I completely disagree with that. I think there were a lot of scammers out there, and I think most people are scammers. You know, but ultimately, when you're trying something new, when you're trying to build, you know, figuring out how you can build a cryptocurrency whose value is derived by its utility in a decentralized framework, something that has, that people have not really done before, it's trial and error involved. Failure should be expected. So to sit back and say everything that failed is because it's a fraud, you know, ultimately we've attracted cap. There's several things that are good have happened to the ecosystem. A lot of young people that would never have made money made money. So, and more people have made money than lost money. So if we have an ecosystem where more people have made money than lost money, and we made young people rich that never would have been rich if this wasn't the plan. Uh, you know, then to me, that's a good thing. We've attracted a lot of really smart people to now work on very interesting problems. And if this conversation never happened, not between you and I, but about Bitcoin, blockchain, and decentralization, and there never was the bubble, all these talent would have never entered. So I think ultimately this is long term. You know, the, the docs, you know, the, the, the tech docs all failed in the beginning also. But some people didn't give up. People could have said, oh, you know, people in the 1990s, you know, 2000, thought the whole thing of internet was a fraud. Uh, you know, people have ridiculed almost every innovation. The Wright brothers were ridiculed. Uh, the steamboat, Wright, Fulton, Tollies, uh, Kessler and, 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 and Edison on electricity. Uh, all these things were, were ridiculed. Einstein was ridiculed on his theory, on his theory of all his, you know, magnificent papers of 1905. Uh, so I think anything that's significantly different is ridiculed, and and whenever there's an op, people smell money, you get you get the best element and worst element in it, and you don't want the cost of preventing the worst element in it is preventing the best element from being in it. So I think that what has happened here is the market corrected pretty quickly. In under a year, the market corrected. Now it's much more difficult to raise money. I can say if this was regulated, a lot of good ideas would have never raised, would have never gotten off the ground. And the bad ideas would have stayed around longer. Think about how many zombie financial institutions existed, you know, in the 1980s. Think about how many existed after, you know, 2008. You know, regulators preserve incumbent zombies, you know, which impede the efficient allocation of capital. 
in the non-regulated world, the shit coin, you know, they, they became worthless quickly, very quickly. You know, so people made mistakes and the market regulated. Tell me one regulator that's going to prevent a mistake. You know, there's no regulator going to prevent any mistake and no regulator is going to prevent any fraud. And the value, and, and I can tell you the fraud, you know, when you have, when you, when, when you have a regulated industry, since you're trusting the regulator, the frauds are much bigger than some. So you haven't had Enron, Enron type of frauds in, in crypto. You haven't had, uh, you know, continental bank type of frauds. You haven't had to bail out all the financial systems and had a perverted economic policy, you know, because of the significant amount of fraud. If you think about the core of fraud in industries that are very heavily regulated, and look at how much money's been probably lost in Bitcoin, in cryptos, I mean, because of Floyd, not Bitcoin. You know, it's significantly smaller because people understood there's no, there's no, there's no one there protecting you. You're on your own. Okay. And that, and that so, has so, to so, behave so, significantly better. So, 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 so I don't say terrible. So, so let's say that we have a, a, a better ecosystem evolving on, uh, on the crypto side. Let's say that we have the blockchain moving forward as as it has. How do you see your interpretation of this playing out? How are we going to get from what you've outlined in the beginning and the potential opportunities that exist in terms of governance from where we are today? How do you see it? Well, say for example, if we have like a global world, and let's say we're going to get and we make borders irrelevant. We have one. So Let's get back and say there's a whole bunch of five, six, seven, ten people, thirty people, a hundred people want to get together and they want to figure out how to do something in multiple countries at the same time. And so the first thing is just like say, gee, you know, I have to get this law and this law and this. And say what happens if I built a platform and I said, you know what? Let's, let's forget about R&B, dollar, euro, whatever. Let's just exchange in this. And by the way, since we're all in different countries, you know, and we're just engaging in activities, we're not married to each other. This is just an activity we want to do that we each agree we want to do it and we want to do it together. So we don't have to form a company. You know, what we need to do is we need to agree how we're incentivizing each other to contribute every day. And we'll figure out in the governance structure to figure out how we reward people based upon their contributions. And we'll agree onto that incentive much of the mechanism. And the way we're going to make sure that we have a ledger that nobody controls, therefore, that nobody can be can defraud, and that we all trust. And to real time in nature, we'll have a distributed ledger, which means that not well, not not one of us is producing, is putting the input into the ledger. You know that everything that's going on and all the activity that we're doing amongst and between ourselves is recorded by a third party that's monitoring that, and we're relying upon that third party's monitoring of that, and we're trusting the results that any time anyone looks in that ledger. That we're, that's a, that's an accurate record of what we're all doing. So we have a, we create a we create a footprint of our own providence into the project. There's a ledger that everyone trusts. There's a ledger everyone can look at, and there's a ledger that everyone can observe. And then you sit back and say, "Why don't we, Why do I even need accounting statements? You know, if I have a ledger and all the activity that's going on is reported on the ledger, who needs to produce accounting statements? Why do you need legal opinions? Why do you need ordinary financial statements?" Essentially, that's what a distributed ledger does. A distributed ledger means you don't need an accountant, you don't need an auditor, you don't need a legal opinion. Okay, all of that is embedded in the protocol itself. So that's then there's no constraints on people for cooperating with each other and figuring out how they want to distribute value. 
You know, why, why do we have, you know, why close ask the question, why, com- why, why companies exist? Why firms exist? Okay. Firms exist, but they're also an artificial construct. You know, five different people can do the same business. They create a different organizational form. They can make the same amount of revenue and pay different amount of tax. So essentially, basically, is the government is subsidizing one form of, of organizing you, well, it's another organizing you, and again, creating barriers to entry of organizing people. You know, like if people wanted to build a platform like like Uber, but wanted to now sit back and allocate tokens of value to all the drivers, you know, you can't, because essentially, the way the government looks now is if you're a driver and I'm giving you token reward for driving a lot, you know, and that token could have and I'm issuing you the token, sort of like I would issue like a stock option for somebody. That's a security. And I can't issue security for non-employees. You know, right now, all I would have to do is I have to go, then I'm creating a qualified stock option plan. And so I can give, I can give value incentives to workers. I can't give value incentives to non-workers. You know, in a, in a, in a world where less and less people are employees, you know, why, why, and people are trying to organize themselves. You know, in ways outside the firm, why are we making it so difficult for people to distribute value to people who are contributing value unless they're doing it in the, in the context the way some government says they like you to do it? So I think we have, I think we could change all of organizational structure if people could just organize activities any way they choose, come up with every government structure they choose, be an employee or not employee, where that concept basically becomes irrelevant and how the ledger is kept. Only those parties that are contributing to the ecosystem, only they have to care about how the ledger stands. And, uh, I think, so I think that gives us a lot more flexibility on how we decide to organize ourselves. The ability to organize ourselves where geography becomes irrelevant. And that basically what we're trusting is, is we're no longer trusting local law. We're trusting the ledger. Everything we need to know is in that ledger, you know, and we're trusting that that ledger is telling the truth. So then we don't have to worry about what anybody else is doing because all the trust isn't better than that ledger. So I think that's the potential of blockchain and that's the potential of tokenization is that can we restructure how we incentivize people. The other thing, the other thing I'd like to add before we get to the moment is, and you also think about like wealth and equality of things, you know, anyone, anyone that produces information, data that somebody is using, they're creating value. So many people who don't have a job and have a paycheck, but are engaging in activities, and somebody's tracking those activities and getting paid, getting paid rewards is in this, in this world, we're not recognizing people who are really creating value. And so they are recreating value. We're not valuing the human being properly as a human being, nor as an economic agent, because people are profiting off what they're producing without paying them, even though they're profiting off of them, which means that they are doing something that has value, only they're not capturing any of the value. So I think in, in an area where the blockchain is clear in defining providence and ownership, then that expropriation ends. Hmm. So do you, and again, I'm, I'm going to just bring it, I've, I've done 180 interviews. I've never gone over. So I'm I, I this is the first time, Jeffrey, and that, that's why I love talking with you. Uh, do you see I, I'm trying to envision this turning over. I see governments trying to hold on as as power as strong as they can. 
I see individuals in power trying to redistribute or, or govern, as you, you've mentioned. How I'm trying to play out a picture of how this would transform or turn over or flip so that I, 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 think, it's flip. I think it's going to flip because eventually the people who are the pioneers in this industry and the tokens they accumulate that end up being the successful tokens, okay, that that will be the greatest wealth transfer in history away from the incumbent wealth to, to do wealth. And that's going to have people flowing into the ecosystem. But the only way that ecosystem survives is through cooperation, you know, not rent extraction. So the whole incentive, what makes the ecosystem successful is that it's not about rent extraction. So if it becomes about rent extraction, it loses its character and will lose its value. So it's the only system that we have out there where essentially it's only successful if it becomes good at distributing value in a decentralized basis rather than concentrating value. So as, as there are success stories of that platform, those types of platforms having success, people, if you're an employee, if I'm driving for Uber and, and I'm making minimum wage essentially for Uber, and then there's a decentralized platform that I'm earning tokens and you know, I'm not becoming a millionaire, but I'm becoming, I'm, I'm, my network is now three times what it would be as an Uber driver. And everybody's going to be driving for that platform and no longer Uber. So essentially, when people start seeing the attributes of decentralized institutions succeed, people reject centralized institutions. And the centralized institutions are going to have to figure out how to, how to, how to decentralize. Other than that, they won't survive. So I think, I think it'll be done through how economics works. You know, that ultimately when the, when, when the benefits of decentralization start to demonstrate that there's a sound economic story to it, which right now the regulators are trying to prevent, you know, so because they're trying to make it impossible to build a decentralized ecosystem. But I think people will figure out and get around that. And what people do, people will then, will then migrate over to this because they'll find it a lot more appealing. So I think when, so they, when we start seeing successfully decentralized firms versus co command and control hierarchical firms, and they go side by side, you know, and they're parallel, and people are seeing the experience over, I think ultimately people will migrate over to the decentralized firms well, yeah, and abandon it's, it's the centralized your, it's, your firms. it's your basketball. It's your basketball analogy. The yeah. the question be. Uh, I, I'm. Uh, I didn't look at your age. I'm 55. How uh, I believe 63. you're sim 63. 63. Okay. Uh, in your lifetime, do you believe you're going to see this? Yes. So we're talking within the next 30 some odd years, there will be that flip. Yes. Uh, any insight into the? in what you're seeing will be that trigger or, or a location or something that has, the reason is, is uh, for, I, I'm, I'm, I normally try not to break character, but I'm thinking about people listening. I'm thinking myself at the same time is what would I be looking for besides what would I be looking for to know that this is happening so that if I tripped over it, I'd say, okay, I see it. I think there's several things that are happening. One is you keep seeing significant amount of investment made into the Bitcoin ecosystem and even in the other cryptos that I don't necessarily believe in, 
but at least there is significant investment being made into it. People thinking about desexualization. There's a lot of people also working about wanting to produce, you know, an alternative, you know, uh, economic paradigm. So I think right now there's two economic paradigms that are starting to make a lot of noise. Is one is that the younger generation is becoming more socialist. And, uh, you know, and then you also have even some of the establishment, like even, you know, Warren Buffett said the other day and, uh, and, 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 and Ross from, I mean, the former Pinto guy, um, yeah. uh, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, having some sympathy for what's called modern monetary theory, MMT, um, uh, which basically says the government can issue a lot more debt and print a lot more money. And, um, uh, so I think, I, I think, unfortunately, you know, I, and I tell people uh, this who say, when, when I see these TV programs and people say socialism doesn't work, you know, we have to stick to capitalism. Well, I, I think it's a losing argument to defend the status quo. So people elected Trump um, and people, you know, have elected a lot of populist candidates, not because they love their ideology, it's because they're unhappy with the status quo and they don't want to hear more of the same. Um, so they don't know what they want, but they know they don't want more of the same. So for people to say, hey, let's have more of the same, it just is not, is not compelling. So given the fact, you know, the answer right now, like for Republicans, not to get political, is all we need to do is keep cutting taxes and miraculously that'll solve every problem. Okay, that's like very naive. The thing is that there's, this, there's no structural problems in how we organize economic activity. Um, uh, and that's just wrong-headed. We have a crony system, and we don't have a capitalist system, and we have a hybrid system. You know, we have a very socialist system. You know, and, and it's just not explained that way. You know, every bank, I, I, I say that to I say that to people all the time. You don't understand how much of what we do is socialist, and they no, 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 it's capitalist. No, it's socialist. When we're sharing resources the way we do in, in environments, and I can explain, they say I didn't think about it that way, but it's still capitalism. No, it's not capitalism. We, we have a hybrid system, and we have really we have very little capitalism. Most of the capital, to the principal channel of savings in the country, is the financial system, and the financial system is is, is allocated capital according to administrative rules. So, how much money goes into banks is a function of deposit insurance. Uh, if we didn't have deposit insurance, not so much money. The banks would not be the principal sources of how we channel savings. So the government just says we want savings channels through banks. So they incentivize people by subsidizing the banks to accept people's savings by telling people if you put money in the bank, you don't have to worry about credit anymore. So we're now going to assume the credit risk, which means we're socializing credit risk. Um, and now we're also determining how banks allocate capital because we're coming up with a scheme that says if you buy government bonds, don't worry about needing capital because we want you to buy government bonds. And we want people to own homes. So let's subsidize mortgage-backed security. Okay, for corporations, let them go to the access to capital markets. So we don't want banks lending to corporations because we want the capital markets for them. We don't really like banks lending to small businesses, so we make it expensive for the banks to lend to small businesses. So the capital guidelines make the situation where the government says, I am, I'm not pricing it relative to really what its risk, inherent risk is. I'm pricing it according to that's how I want savings channels. So the political process is determining how capital is being allocated and to which intermediaries is allocated. That's socialism. We have a command and control 
through incentives where the government is providing you an incentive to behave a certain way. And so it's, you know, maybe like you would call the nudging, but it's a, it's a shove. It's not a nudge, it's a shove. The government is shoving us all the time to do something, so we have the illusion of choice. But the government is giving us just an illusion of choice because they're subsidizing some choices and penalizing other choices. So ultimately, they say, choose whatever you want, but if you choose this, I'm going to be happy and I'm going to give you some perks. Choose that and I'm going to be unhappy and it's going to be a bad consequence. So the government is directing our choices. And so ultimately, we really don't have many choices and the government is controlling that. And so we have a system that's dressed up as capitalism, but that's socialism. So I have sympathy for some of the people promoting socialism. And I'm sitting back and saying is this system of distributing value is bad. And they want a dip, they want an alternative. And I don't blame them for wanting an alternative. Well, how I see the, um, you know, wh when you certainly went through that, that list that you just went through right now, I mean, going to any, most people who are part of the establishment today, who are the beneficiaries of, you know, the, this, the status quo, I mean, clearly, uh, they have no motivation to try and uh, help facilitate or ease the path for something like this. Um, you know, so uh, the way I think about it is is is, uh, is the fact of going to and how do how do you reach to all the audience of those who have been disaffected and feel disenfranchised by the status quo, both both feeling about both the political process and their financial futures, because ultimately they're linked. Only people don't see the linkage, you know, between the two. Um, yes. So then the question is, is how do you, how do you reach, how do you reach that audience? One is you already see right now, if you take a look at what, what the stock market participation is for how many people directly invest in the stock market in the U.S. Stock market participation, I think, is like under 20%. Directly, I mean, indirectly, it's much higher through people's pension plans, but ultimately, most people don't trust the stock market very much. There's basically, people don't trust, you know, it's interesting that people, if you don't trust money, if you don't trust the government, which people nowhere in the world anymore trust government, and the government is responsible for producing paper, where the only value of that paper is tied to the trust of the government, why would people value the paper that government, you know, prints if you don't trust the government itself. So uh, I think, unfortunately, you know, going to how now we build a movement uh, around this, you know, it's, it's clearly a big challenge because every institution today wants to impede its process. It's like you take a look at it. It's very interesting, like if you look at college curriculums now, a lot of people have blockchain programs. But the blockchain programs are in the computer science group. So it's a tech. So they don't have, you don't see economics departments, you know, incorporating, okay, monetary theories and theories of money, and now talking about, you know, and now talking about Bitcoin, uh, just like they don't really talk about gold or hard money whatsoever. It's like right now embedded in almost every economic program is there's an independent central bank, you know, and you got to trust this independent central bank. And then the question is, it's what's more effective, how much should we manage through fiscal policy and how much we should manage monetary policy, you know, and, 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 and basically there's something everybody now agrees upon seems to be that deficits aren't bad at all. You know, even, yeah. you know, forget about what Keynes said, which were the deficits were good during 
you know, during bad economic circumstances and, and bad during good economic circumstances. So on average, we should be in a balanced budget, according to Keynes, because if the people managing the economy are managing it well, we should generally be in good economic circumstances, so there should not be a need for a, uh, you know, a persistent deficit. So even people call themselves Keynesians aren't really Keynesians, you know, because Keynes never advocated a permanent deficit. Uh, Keynes never advocated a permanent role in government trying to stimulate consumption and, and intermediating credit. That was in response only to when we were in a very severe recession or depression, you know, not, not ordinary course of business. Um, right. So, uh, and right now, most government spending is not really what, what a lot of what Keynes has talked about was not only stimulating aggregate demand, but also when there were periods of underinvestment that the government needed to make investments that the private sector was not making. So right now, most government is about consumption, not investment. There's very little investment spending on, on the government. So we're having an operating budget that's constantly in, in deficit and big deficit independent of the business cycle. So this yes. is even Keynesian economics. This is morphed into, you know, who knows what anyone wants to call it. Yeah, it's its, um, it's, its, own, it's, its own animal. It's its own animal, yes. So, so you know, first is I think that there has to be, one is I think that, you know, the proliferation of, you know, of podcasts I think is a very, very important uh, because now people have been turned off, people are not watching, you know, the, the, the news, they get their information from, you know, Facebook and other social media sources and, and, and listen to more and more people are listening to podcasts and, and a lot of people are producing YouTube videos. Uh, so I think, uh, I think more people producing better quality um, content in this area, uh, I think is I think is really crucial. I, I have tried I have tried a number of times with with a number of the uh, uh, exchanges all over the world to crypto exchanges to convince them that they should put together you know a real a publication. Um, Unfortunately, many of these exchanges are promoting a lot of altcoins and, you yep. know, and what I refer to as shitcoins. Uh, so they don't really have the motivation to really talk about, you know, what's the difference between hard money and a whole range of cryptocurrencies that might be, you know, have different attributes. But, you know, and, and, but at least people can understand the difference in their attributes so people can be more informed about how they enter and invest into the cryptocurrency world. Um, so I think it's going to require... It's, it's, interest, it's interesting that you touched on that because while I was talking to my friends yesterday and we had, I mean, investment bankers, wealth management, as I told you, gold, crypto people, but I had people outside uh, in fashion and in uh, blockchain or... I mean, the, the range was huge. I said to them, I've got to believe that Jeffrey has shared some of this information and pieces and components all over, but the movement is the challenge. And one of the reasons that I wanted to have this again is because I think that I might have a mechanism that you and I as uh, could work together on. And just because you and I, I mean, the way we met was there was a translation factor and there there could be a way that we could work on this. And, and I do want to share that later, but to give a higher view, because I've opened it up to the door for people listening. And I, I feel kind of like a, I know Charlie Rose has his challenges in the United States, but this is a private table is that 
if you were looking to, for example, the International Space Station, even though it's run by governments, it is a shared economy. Uh, there, are, it's a, a circular, uh, a circular environment. There are places that this type of proliferation of this information needs to get out there, but it also needs to be translated from. I'm going to say it, and just take it in kind, from your brilliance, which I can completely get to something that's understandable on a micro level where an individual, and that's why I started off with the individual when I asked you, what can they do? I'm asking myself, how can we get, so that I can translate it for you if you wanna use those that type of thinking. How can we get the individual to participate in this, not just hear about it, but I need to get my mind around, how do we get the individual, that that one person to who's who's got both feet and both sides there, they, they've been disenfranchised by the political system. They've been challenged by the economic system. Even the wealthy who have gone ups and downs, very high highs, very low lows. How do we get those individuals to at least understand and put one foot? There's a, you, probably, you probably remember this growing up, Jeffrey. There was a, the, I think it was a Christmas song or a Christmas story. It was put one foot in front of the other, and soon you'll be walking across the floor. Well, how do we get one foot in front of the other so that we can, as one of the sayings I have is you can't get, uh, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel unless you take the first step. So where do we, how do we help them take those steps? So you, you asked some very good questions that I've had. Uh, I've tried numerous things and, and, and have not succeeded on any of them today but don't don't uh, worry don't worry about the you, whether you've succeeded because i i think that is the case because i last night i took a look at her video and y- you haven't had the platform to speak for hours the same way you're having it today uh i want you to teach me teach me how what you would think and then i'm going to try to translate that into a different uh different vehicle okay teach I've, me. I've spoken i've spoken to you know i i think the problem with with my conversation with most of the people and quote the crypto ecosystem is because my, I, I'm, I'm taking an approach that's very philosophical in nature and they're just, most of them are just in the space to make money. So, yes, they're, so, they're, they're, absolutely. They're, so, so we, we, our interests are not aligned. Um, not at all. And, 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 and the point that I've made in, 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 in several of my talks, uh, that uh, I strongly believe is that ultimately what people, the, the movements that are the most powerful have never been about money, okay? They've been about ideas. People, you know, it's a, it's a narrative that people are drawn to for whatever draws them to that narrative, you know, given whatever circumstances are in the context of which they are living at that moment in time. So, I mean, what, you know, not, not what Jesus did, but what Paul did, and, and traveling around and converting people into Christians, you know, had nothing to do with money. Uh, you know, uh, Moses organizing, you know, the the Israelites, um, the the Lutheran movement from Martin Luther, uh, the American Revolution. Uh, you know, so basically, almost a, you know, a Mahatma Gandhi. You know, so what people have been able to do is organize. You know, we had a we had a million people marching for civil rights. We had a million people marching for women's rights. So think about how we've been able to organize people when people think there's a great 
uh, injustice uh, occurring. Um, you know, so when people think there's a great injustice thing occurring, you know, people motivate and it has nothing to do about money. I mean, to some extent, the women's movement says, I want equal work, equal pay for equal work, and that's legitimate. But it certainly was a lot more than just getting a bigger paycheck. So, and, 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 and for the civil rights, well, it was also a lot more than just being treated equally in the workforce. So it's being valued equally as a human being. Uh, but we see a lot of movements that have us all of us being valued equally as a human being for whatever it is we believe in. But the challenge that uh, I see in the approach, and just uh, I'm saying, trying to say this kindly, is that you're you're so knowledgeable, you're so bright, you understand so many of these things in the conversations I've had before this and now that you're it's not a movement you're delivering you're delivering the content and the challenge is is around the world we have individuals and i i think when i go around the world i got indonesia bangladesh sri lanka we've got uh kenya we've got germany transforming they just had uh there's a, a new party leader i believe in germany and they're moving in a different direction you've got the the far right the far left there's so little understanding of governance. There's so little understanding of economics. There's so little understanding of why and where people are in this position that the narrative you've got the you've got the for, a formula. I'm going to just say a formula, but you don't have a movement. You have a formula, and that needs to be translated into a vehicle, not unlike a financial vehicle, but a vehicle that doesn't reach the people you're reaching. So you're speaking to the crypto, you're speaking to the blockchain groups, you're speaking to the high wealth and net high net worth. You're speaking to people who completely can understand you, but don't wish to. And what has to happen is you have to go from talking to the people who need you, want you, to the message, the narrative. It doesn't have to be you. But it has to go to the people who don't need you, who don't understand that this exists, cannot, com don't comprehend it, have, have been, they're in the, what I, in what I call the blind zone. They, when you live in a country, for example, uh, in America, and then you go to Copenhagen, uh, Denmark, you see different realities. You're thrown into a paradigm shift if you're if you're not a global traveler or if you're thrown you're thrown into India or Hong Kong or any of these countries. You say, "Why are they doing it that way? That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand that." And yet, when you get there, there's a new that new paradigm. And these individuals need to be awoken. And they need to be awoken to a different narrative that the people you're speaking to will not hear and will not bite into. However, they don't realize they are creating it de facto. They're building it. Yes. But they don't realize what they're building. Does that make sense? Yes. I think that, um, and I think the analogy, and I've used this uh, a number of times, is when, when uh, Hannah Arendt uh, covered the uh, Eichmann trials, when uh, the Israelis captured Eichmann uh, in Argentina and, and, and brought him back to Israel to trial, to basically put the Holocaust on trial, you know, in front of the world, uh, Hannah Arendt was very interested in 
in, in covering it, and she asked the magazine to be able to, to hire her to go to Israel to cover it. She covered it, and as a result of it, the series that turned into a book, and the term that uh, Hannah Arendt coined was the banality of evil. And when, so when she was studying Heisman, she said, do I think he's evil? And she came to the conclusion that she didn't think he was evil, and that he's just a guy who's doing what he's told, who's not thinking through the consequences of what he's right. doing. And so he's just trying to execute the mechanics of his job as well as possible. I'll give you a personal example of what happened today. Today I had to uh, uh, wire some, uh, some money. And I have to tell you, I keep almost nothing in dollars. So my bank account here is very, very small. Um, and, uh, but I had to do a wire transfer today. And so I went to the bank and uh, the banker said, you know, you know, with the amount of money I have, I should be in a different category of clients. And I said, no, no, I don't need that. I don't mind paying the $50, you know, wire transfer. I don't want to increase my status in the bank. And, you know, she said, you know, do you want to speak to a private wealth manager? And I said, let me explain to you why I'm not going to speak to a private wealth manager. I said, so first I sit back and say, so first I talked to her about fiat money and why fiat was easy. And then I said, think about it. You see it here in the work. You work very, very hard. You know, you're a reasonably sophisticated person. You know, and every day you sit back and you know, being reasonably sophisticated person, that the stock market was doing very, very poorly. Trump and all Wall Street were imploring Powell to make easy money again, you know, to stop the reduction of the Fed balance sheet, to stop the drawdown of the balance, you know, of, of the balance sheet. So to either keep it stable or have it grow again, you know, but continue to have a very easy money regimen. And from after that, the stock market recovered. So... So I said, you know, so when you think about that, you understand how much the stock market's performance is related to the central bank policy. So you sit and you come to work every single day, you know, and you and I don't think you get a big salary and I don't think you get stock options and I don't think you get a bonus. But the CEO gets a bonus and gets stock options. So the C, so every time every time Powell makes easy money the stock market goes up, somehow your boss gets rewarded for it, but you don't get rewarded for it. Can you explain to me how that makes you feel to know that actions that actions that occur that are completely independent of the performance of your boss, that the only person that gets rewarded for those things are him and not you? To the extent that the stock market is no longer a barometer of what your your boss is doing relative to his peers or her you know, or her peers, but just a function of what the central bank is doing determines how much money they make. And so is the central bank working on their behalf and anybody else's behalf? So I asked her, how does that make you feel? You know, and if I give you more money, you know, I'm contributing to that system. So how do you feel about contributing to that system? And she ended up being kind of embarrassed. She was very nice and polite. And she said, well, you know, I just, I'm just here to make a living. So I said, yes, I can understand that. I don't mean to be in judgment of you or criticism of you. I want you to understand why I'm saying no to you and why you shouldn't ever, ever ask me that question again. But I said, you know, I hope you go home and I hope you go think about how just you think that system is, that, that just a few percentage of the people are making money off something that has nothing to do with their performance. As a matter of fact, if you take a look at what if you take a look at what CEOs are being rewarded for right now, they're being rewarded for central bank policy, they're being rewarded for producing a business that doesn't have any increases in productivity because productivity growth in the country has been pretty stagnant. You know, and ultimately they ultimately what's driving them to do better is financial engineering. A, 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 a easy Fed policy, 
and outsourcing jobs. So you want to reward them from, for, for having, you know, for you sitting here coming to work as an American working for an American-owned company. Do you want to reward the CEO for having you have a lower salary, for them getting more money because the central bank is, 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 is um, you know, is running a policy that, that benefits just a, just a small percentage of the population, uh, and, uh, you know, so that basically compress your wages, uh, don't really work on making you more productive, uh, but how they can exploit you more. And, and I know that I'm pretty sure every day you come to work, that's pretty much how you feel. And she kind of looks kind of embarrassed, and she then quietly acknowledges that that's how she feels. So I said, so, so, I said, so, Thank so you. let's, let's, so take there are a lot of people right. that feel that way. But so. let's take that, Jeffrey. I, I want to take that scenario because you did something, again, where I, uh, you're repeating what I said before, that the narrative that you're using, the way you're using it, and maybe I need to be a little clearer, what you just did is you disempowered her, you didn't empower her. You gave her the ideas at such a high level. But when she walks, works that whole day, she knows she's a deer in headlights. She doesn't understand it. And the biggest thing is she doesn't know how to get on the train. It's going too fast. There's no stop that she can get on. She doesn't even know where the platform is. And I mean platform not in the terms of a technological platform. She doesn't even know where to get on the train. So let's start from here. Let's assume, and let's play in a theoretical world, the two of us. Let's assume that you had to help her, given her resources, and you know that she's earning one of the lowest wages in the bank, a teller is a, a very, or a, a, a bank man, a title in a bank means nothing. They gave away titles, they don't give away money. So let's assume that this person at this economic level is struggling to really have what you are considering a different type of lifestyle where she gets value from her work. And you had to sit down and help her, or help me, describe to me, how would you help and pull this person into this new arena? Don't worry about her. Tell me. Tell me how we would get this person into onto that platform and onto that train so they could be participating in this. In And I, I, I hate to use this because it's part of the space industry and many other industries, but the new world order. How would you do I, I, I think I think... One of the things that I've suggested to uh, a, a number of people um, is, you know, I think one of the ways of building awareness and spreading adoption is that people, if, if, if you know, I, I've spoken to some people building wallets and stuff like that to make it easy to transfer Bitcoin from person to person and to download it is that, um, and I'm going to start doing this. I know so far, so far I've, I've, I've been proud of the fact that I've never sold any Bitcoin. I don't want to sell Bitcoin, but I want to spread it. So one of the things I'm going to start doing, you know, and spreading is I'm going to set up, I'm setting up a different account. And now when I go to places for anyone that has a cell phone, okay, like, you know, for any service I get, uh, instead of me giving somebody, you know, $20 in cash or $5, if I go to a, if I go to a hotel and somebody takes my luggage and I give them $5 cash, if I'm going to give everybody Bitcoin. So any tip I give to anyone for any service, I'm going to give Bitcoin. And when I give it to Bitcoin, when I give them Bitcoin, I'm going to explain why I'm giving it to them. So hopefully if more people actually own it, they will begin to be more curious about it. 
they'll ask some questions about it. And, uh, you know, and uh, so I hope. And what you're going to do is you're going to send them to this podcast if they're really interested to understand it. And I'm not trying to market the podcast. I'm trying to get get the, the information out. That still doesn't help me to help that one person. Let's focus on that one person. And I know this might be a little challenging, but this one individual is sitting there. She has a a husband doing, let's make this up. He's a middle-level manager in a, uh, a hotel. How do we help that individual with two children at home try to make them don't worry about the movement. How do we help that individual? Oh, dealing with an individual and talking about whatever their circumstances are and whatever they have, whatever much money they have in excess of what they need for everyday consumption to live. Uh, you know, because if they, if, if, if basically for everything they make is just to support their covering their expenses and they have nothing else, there's not much you can do in the short run. They get paid in cash. Whatever cash comes in goes out. They have no savings. They can't defer consumption. So for people who can't defer consumption, they're stuck. Uh, so that's sad, but they're stuck. Uh, whatever comes in doesn't cover whatever goes out, and therefore they can't put anything in a really a store of value. They just uh, they're just spending it as quickly as they comes in. For anyone, okay. So would- that individual is not part of the movement today. They're not part of the group that we need to be focusing in on because we're not ready for them. And the analogy that I have used for Project Moon Hut, which I think I told you we have the Age of Infinite podcast series and we're moving in a certain direction. We'll go over that at another time. But when we don't have the foundation yet, we don't we're trying to build a skyscraper and we we know we could fill it with people, but we still have a foundational piece missing. So. So the low income without discretionary income to be able to a reasonable amount. This is not the play today. This is not the roller coaster they should be on. What if we were to move up to the mid level? Someone who has some extra money, but they realize they they're looking for their future. They're looking. There's a woman by the name of Amy Domini. Amy Domini ran one of uh, one of three socially responsible investment firms of the largest in New York City, I'd say a decade ago. It's a much more popular today, but let's say a decade ago. And we were talking about investment policy, investment opportunities. And she, and she said, it's not really growing. She said, everybody wants social responsibility. However, when they're dealing with their retirement, they want their money in ExxonMobil or Exxon. She said they don't put it in our place because the return on socially responsible, truly socially responsible, not fake socially responsible, which means they do something, but they do something contradictory on the other side. These these individuals still take their money because they want to retire and they put it in organizations that show growth, whether they're socially responsible or not. So the challenge is I'm looking I'm looking for your guidance to show me or help me understand not how to build the movement, but where people can get on and how can we get them on and I'll translate it with you into a narrative. I just want to understand that. Well, anyone who has some form of savings uh, and having trying to figure out what to do with their money that they have in excess of 
what they need to spend. Um, so far, every study that's been done on you know, the most important decision anyone makes on how to save and how to invest the money that, they're, that they have saved so it, it, it preserves their purchasing power and have their purchasing power grow, and so they accrue wealth over time uh, because that's hopefully what you want your savings to do is to accrue wealth over time. Uh, it sh- demonstrates that if you introduce some percentage of ownership of crypto into your portfolio, the incremental reward more than compensates for the incremental risk. You know, so I've asked some quant traders why don't they have any crypto in their portfolio uh, if they if, if they're basically neutral and they're just quant traders and they're just looking at different asset classes and they're just running numbers and determining you know what's the you know what's the best uh, return they can produce with using quant models given some tolerance for risk that if you build those models and determine the tolerance for the risk to showing that the same risk tolerance if they had some allocation in crypto they would get higher returns that why aren't they doing it and uh, uh, and most of them just give me blank stares so I think I know why Jeffrey I know why I know why they don't stare. do it because it's not convenient for them to do it it's so. not only not con- it's not only Jeffrey it's not only not convenient let's play out the scenario which I'm gonna play it out in somewhat the internet and then tie it together. And you brought it up, so I'm, I'm using your words to bring it t- together. The internet started, people thought it was a scam, they were afraid of it, they said it would never get anywhere. Uh, what it was, Bill Gates, there were there were several people who thought that this would not move into anything. But you get someone like a Bezos who got early on in the bookstore selling books, and you had people that engaged in, the, in building tech. It was challenging, I was using, uh, God, I was trying to remember the software that I was using. Then I used was front, front page, which was a very clunky software application. And then I moved to Dreamweaver, and it was still not even object-oriented programming. And now we can go on Wix and we can get things done just by moving it. Anybody can. However, we did have the dot-com bubble. It went up and it went down. We, we have had its highs and lows. When we look at the crypto side... I think it's different and similar to the internet. The crypto side is not showing a new tech. Blockchain is a tech. It's it's not. I don't see it the same way as an industry. I think in ten years or five years, people are going to say they're not going to say, "Are you are you on the blockchain?" Because you will be if you're doing something. That's the only way things will be done. It won't be the same industry it is today, and that's why where I am, there are a lot of um, blockchain companies that have failed. But what happened that made this different is people were getting onto it and selling it and promoting it just for the purposes of making money. And quite literally, my Uber or Lyft driver in L.A., as a matter of fact, was selling me on how I should get into this game because he's going to make a lot of money off of it. And what happened was the let's call it double crash. We had blocked uh, Bitcoin go all the way up to 17 and then drop all the way down to uh, to three and a half. And at the same time, we saw hordes of people writing these papers and literally delivering nothing. So we're in a negative position as compared to the Internet, meaning that people's perception is there are a lot, lot of scammers out there. And there are there were 
So this is a double hurdle. It's the double hurdle of the tech, and it's a double hurdle of the behavioral side. So my game, if I was to play this, and I'm playing it out live with you, is my game is let's not try to get the, the individual to make that jump, this quant trader. Let's not, they're not going to be able to convince individuals that they should jump on this bandwagon today. But what really needs to fundamentally happen are there needs to be key triggers that happen within the tech side or the understanding side or the, the application side of this industry that gives confidence to the non-believers, not people like you and not people who understand it and go to these crypto conferences who are even trying to get wealthy. They do understand the, the back end side because they're already in it. They're already trying to improve it to make own personal gain. But we need to get it so that not only those individuals, but others can play the game properly and move this forward tech wise so that we go from Fumpage to Dreamweaver to, let's call it, and those two were programming line, uh, programming software where you actually did your own programming with some object-oriented movement to a place where someone can get on, create a podcast, create a website. They can do something that's valuable and they can see it. So we have we have a larger hurdle here because there this was a scam. Two years, most so many businesses in the crypto space didn't do anything. So how do we get the individual who, let's say, has some discretionary uh, money. They can move some in, but they don't want to wait 30 years, Jeffrey. They don't want to wait 30 years to make their, their return. So uh, I think, what, I think, can, you know, first, what can I have the piece of... First, what, who's first, the group that first, you want to do something? I don't know. First, the way you set it up, I have to sit back and say that makes it more complicated. Because again, you have yes. to separate out the issue of blockchain from Bitcoin. Okay. While yes. while one of the under techno while, while one of the underlying technologies embedded in 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 Bitcoin, Bitcoin is not a tech play; it's a money. Play. Correct. So yes. to separate out, blockchain is a tech play. Bitcoin is money. So correct. But but so, many so, people so believe they're the same. So ultimately, when people go out and people make bets on which currencies they think are going to be the strongest currencies through time. So people look yep. at whatever the policies are of different countries and governments, and they sit back and say, "Okay, this is hard money because I can trust this government. This is this is this is bad money because I can't trust their government. You know, I'm not going to give Maduro control over my money. You know, I'm not going to give Erdogan control over my money. I won't even give Mr. Xi control over my money or Mr. Putin control over my money. You know, so you know, so so far we say around the world." You know, it seems to be the U.S. seems to be the best place of a world with a bunch of bad currencies out there. Yes. Selling people, selling people on the fact that, you know, part of the problem, like, first, let's go several issues with the sales process of Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin for a number of years, the investors didn't mind the volatility. They expected it. You know, it was it was it was the scammers that came in. Who, who was selling unrealistic expectations to people, you know, comparable to comparable to, uh, you know, predators and mortgage lending, encouraging people to lever up and buy multiple homes and that they could flip. No different. It, it was no exactly no the same. Than, and no different from the day traders of people who who were day trading uh, tech stocks in the late 1990s. 
uh, people who exactly well, everyone was opening up a Schwab account, you know, and trading and, and trading tech stocks, and they were getting rich one night, and then they were broke the next night. I, I, exactly. I, I, between that 2001 and 2002, you know, at, at one point in time, Amazon was about 95 percent off its high. Uh, if you look at the many of the leaders who were tech companies that started it, that are still around today, they were off between 99 and 90 percent off its high. Bitcoin only yes. went, Bitcoin only is only up only down 80 percent off its high, and and not only that, Bitcoin is way above its low. So those other stocks were below their IPO prices, and not only they were above their high point, they were all below their they were all below their IPO price. You know, if you if you take a look in, in, in 2017, Bitcoin began 2017 at a thousand. When Trump was elected in November, Bitcoin was 600. So when you compare it to its high, you know, people, you know, people might be depressed that they bought it, you know, 17, 18, 19,000. But the reality is most Bitcoin got accumulated at prices under a thousand. So if you look at the number of Bitcoins that were, you know, that were mined, you know, by by like I think February 2016, you know, 15 and a half million bitcoins were mined. Now it's about 17 and a half. So at February 2016, bitcoin was like 500, 600, something like that. You know, so, uh, but you're you're so, giving so, me, you're giving so, me so, a so, rational so, you're, Jeffrey. So, you're giving me a rational understanding to this, which is the financial component of it. But it's fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. The, you're giving a rational understanding to what's happened, being off their high. People might be able to see that, but they cannot see. And you can see it. I'm hoping that's why we're on this call again. You can see that there is that opportunity on the flip side because you see a transition happening over the next 30 years. But for the average person, including myself, I still because of the circles I'm in, meet all these scammers who are out all, for they're, themselves. They're, they're, not, they're not Bitcoin people. They're blockchain people. No. Yes, but they represent, without you thinking it, think about someone like me who doesn't spend 40 years understanding monetary and fiscal policy, was not trading in college or university uh, on the exchange. For me, I meet them and I say, oh, okay, here's another one trying to do. I'm trying to figure out where I can get on that train and still make this train and make it work. And I'm trying to figure out how to help other people get on. So, yes, bad trust, bad government. I was in China not long ago. I was speaking to one of the larger VCs and he said, I'd never keep my money in Chinese currency. The U.S. currency, as bad as it is, as bad as the challenges are with the U.S. dollar, it is the only currency in the entire world where no matter where you are, people will take it. They will take the U.S. dollar. He said, you will not take the yuan. You will not take the, um, you'll take the euro probably more likely, but you will not take several currencies. So he said, I, I keep them in U.S. dollars because U.S. dollars will allow me transportability. So we have this currency called Bitcoin where people are shattered, uh, disillusioned, 
And I do know there's a difference between the blockchain and the crypt and and Bitcoin. And I know there's a difference between cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Yet I'm trying to figure out how do I get these people onto this bandwagon? How do I get them to play by not just putting money in but and saying I'm gonna buy some? They don't understand where they can use that. The ecosystem is not large enough. But I, I think so I, I think encouraging them to buy to use is 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 the wrong approach, and, okay. you know, and I could and I could be wrong about that, but I would not. You know, what what I believe is holding Bitcoin is a hedge against collapse of whatever currencies. If you if you, if if you, if, you, if you if you ask an actuary, what's the probability that the dollar will collapse? That there'll be a significant decline in the dollar and its purchasing power. That ultimately the dollar you have today versus the dollar you have tomorrow will buy you significantly less. Um, yeah. So I would say that an actuary would say that 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 there's more than a, a non-trivial chance that that could happen. And that's not say 50 percent, but they say it's a non-trivial chance. So you say, what's in your portfolio that you hold, no matter how big or small it is, you know that that will be a hedge against that happening. If the possibility is going to happen, how do you end up not being poorer significantly if that happens? What in your portfolio is a hedge against that happening? So, you know, and, and so my answer to that is that the only thing I believe in that was a hedge against that happening is Bitcoin. Yes. In a digital world, in a digital world where people can exchange value and where institutions are likely to become a lot more impressive. Uh, I, I don't think uh, gold definitely does not have the attributes that Bitcoin has for portability and security and storage. Uh, and for younger people, they're not going to find that, you know, that I don't want to own gold and buy a gold stock on an exchange, you know, and or find where I'm going to find physical gold. It's easier to find Bitcoin than to find physical gold. And so for that and yet, yet, Jeffrey, so, so, let's, so I let's, think, let's... So I think, I think that I think so I, it's not about. Buy, have Bitcoin so you can go to Starbucks with it. It's buy Bitcoin because of the fact is if you look at the situation, you know, around the world. Look, you, you speak to a lot of sophisticated people. Let me ask you what their opinion is. Ask them their opinion of how bullish they'll be on the dollar if AOC is president, if Bernie Sanders is president. Okay, and we get MMT. You know, if we if we get a change of the composition of the central bank appointed by Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, you know, or AOC or Beto, and they are, they are constructing the Federal Reserve Board, um, you know, ask them how bullish they'll be under the dollar under that system. Well, I have, I have, ask them, I've ask spoken, them how bullish they'll be I have under the dollar when we have a 90%, when we have 90% income tax rate, you know, and, and a government that is spending money, you know, raising taxes for corporations, raising taxes on the rich, putting a whole lot of other regulations in place, building a significant green agenda, you know, and, uh, and, and printing money like crazy. Then ask me what they're going to think about the dollar. Under okay, the so, so I'm, I'm going to tell you what they're thinking today. I'm going to tell you what they're thinking today. They're, doing, they're playing the traditional board game of Monopoly or Risk or whatever game you want to play. So they are doing things such as creating offshore companies so that they can get take advantage of a 16, 17, 18 uh, percent position. They are 
believing that if the dollar is reduced for the intelligent person, but not the economics person or the person who follows Bitcoin, they're saying, well, gold is still a good investment. You don't believe it, but you under not but yet you understand a different reality. So they are going to traditional means of di uh, divesting their portfolio, using different country uh, tax brackets. Uh, I, there have been more individuals who left the U.S. Uh, in the past years than they have in years gone by, moving wealth out of the U.S. And not a significant number, but enough of a number to say that it is happening. I don't hear people saying, actually, I hear people saying the opposite. They're not saying Bitcoin because they don't see the 30-year vision and they don't see how the functionality will transform. They don't see it. So I, I was just at an event. I was just at an event. There were 50 people and it was about putting money into or putting money into gold and this company set up a crypto so that you can transport it to their crypto and then move it into gold. Their company's model is to move it out of crypto into gold because it's safer. And there were 50, 60 hedge funds, uh, real estate owners, business owners. That's what the, that was what the dialogue was about. And, and how successful have they been at deploying capital? I mean, almost all the funds... They, they're, they're not going to be like you, Jeffrey. You're an anomaly. You, almost, you are... almost, almost all these funds underperform the market. They get huge fees to underperform the market. But so, they don't you know, understand... They, they, they're, the, they're the ones that have missed the last 10 years. They're the ones that did yes. buy zero or one or two or three or five or 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50. So they've basically underperformed by a significant margin anyone who's been a Bitcoin buyer and holder. So I mean, yes. you know, so if I'm going to compare myself to somebody who's underperformed me by, by you know, I could divide my performance by 10 and I still significantly outperform them. And there are others the same, only they don't like to identify themselves to be targets, you know, uh, that, um, you know, that, and, and many people didn't, you know, when it ran up a little bit, they sold quickly. You know, not many people are like me that they just keep holding on. Um, but, um, you know, so... Yes, and you some, help... For, for, you... Some, for somebody who's missed so many asset classes, for anyone who was long 2008, you know, who missed, you know, who, 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 who has rushed through the cycle where they've missed inflection points, you know, I don't know why people trust to trust them because they have huge marketing machines around them. And, 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 and Jeffrey, Jeff, Jeffrey, you know, you know me well enough that I'm capable of understanding most of the things that you've been talking about. So I, I let's put a, a little cap that I've got some of that. I look at you and I'm amazed at your investment and investment understanding and capabilities. You are in blockchain, you are in Bitcoin at 2009 you have invested your entire life. You understand vehicles. I personally have never been able to ride those waves. I've never seen them in time of that type of financial market waves. I don't see them. And I remember asking my cousin who 
at the time worked at Oppenheimer. At some point, he was moving between three to four percent of the market because he was one of the original investors of uh, what type of arbitrage trading. I remember carrying a Capro back in the eighties around New York City for him. In the, in the past decade, I think it was, I was asking him uh, to. He probably was doing risk arbitrage. Yeah, and I said to him, uh, when I was in his office in Oppenheimer in New York City, I said, tell me what you do, explain it. And he explained he hires an individual to create a business, and then he creates a model off the business, and then he creates software to be able to leverage the, the uh, arbitrage. And then what he was able to do was that person runs a business and he had about 15 businesses running and he had 17 people or 19 people paying them half a million dollars a year to be able to make this type of um, money and then bonuses on top of it, making a fortune. And then I said to him on that same day, I said, OK, what do they do? And these are people 20 feet, 20 feet or seven meters from where I was standing. And he said, I don't have a clue what they do. I said, how about those people? He said, no, 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 that's that's complex. I don't understand that vehicle. And I said, do you understand anybody else on this floor? And he said, no, no, I, I work in this space. So the challenge that we have, and that's why I'm online today again, is I'm trying to figure out and I still don't see the, the, the tipping point, flipping point that just buying the currency and you, just buying the currency, the Bitcoin is going to transition to the usability of that Bitcoin. And, and I'm going to, please don't take it 100%. The more utopian societal positioning that you've outlined, I want to understand who or where in the mechanism can I, if I was to walk up to somebody who's a perfect fit, because the way you've described it, there's not a lot of perfect fits. I want to be able to walk up to an individual and say, you're a perfect fit. You're exactly what the Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin would need in terms of transitioning. You should let's start a business in X. And they say, I don't understand this tokenization. And I don't understand how the blockchain works. I, say, I understand that. I'll teach you the blockchain. I'll try to show you what tokenization means. I'll, I can share that with you. But we need to start businesses to do X, Y, and Z. And even though you're not wealthy, you could participate in the biggest gold rush in human history, but the biggest social transformation in human history so that people who deliver a value to the system get value in return. And, and countries, let's call them countries, they may transform based upon your narrative, but countries can also transform into public servants based upon their capability of delivering a value add to individuals who will only pay for value added services and no extras so that the organization becomes more efficient and does what you were talking about earlier, which is the, the Jeffersonian papers, the, uh, the, the original writing of the constitution and how the way they sell monetary funds I want to know. I, I still don't get it, Jeffrey. I'm trying to make the jump from what you said, and I and I loved it. I was excited. I'm still trying to make that jump. I don't see who, where, why that we can get people based upon what has happened over the past two and a half years. Well, I, I, I don't think get that. It. Uh, I think that. Well, 
unfortunately, you know, the what happened in the two year, two and a half, two and a half years has done significant damage to what what had the foundation that was built, you know, the previous seven years in in, in Bitcoin. Um, and and actually, that was the reason why I went public. You know, people notice and they ever try and check me out and you know Google me is I had no social media, no presence at all until about two years ago. I didn't exist. So, uh, and I was somebody that was trying to live as anonymously as possible, not not just uh, maintaining my I can my completely privacy. understand that knowing you. I wanted to, yes. I wanted to preserve my anonymity. I, I, yeah. I could see that how the beginning of the ICO blockchain project uh, was changing the narrative, bringing in a new element into the conversation, uh, and that that would end up very, very badly, and it would end up painting the entire ecosystem. Um, and it did. So, and, it, and it did. So basically, I came out, I spoke a lot, you know, apparently in many of the places I spoke, people like to listen to me speak. Uh, you know, I'm told in many places I have a lot of fans. Um, you know, but ultimately, you know, people didn't heed any of my words. So I had really, I, and which is why I'm now speaking significantly less, because whatever message I was communicating, you know, clearly didn't resonate with anyone. So maybe I'm just not very good at it. Um, well, no, and, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, so, and, and, I, and I, I would agree, Jeffrey, to... <laughs> no, let's, let, let's take this when I, 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 I don't know how much I want to get into this. There's a long narrative to, to project moon hat and I am not a space person at all. I still don't look to the stars mm. and through the story and we're writing a book called the age of infinite which will describe a lot of this so that i don't have to tell the whole story and i'm not going to do it right now but what i had found was while sitting down with a guy in at nasa i outlined what i thought would be an answer to his challenge how do we get to the moon and i wrote out a four-phase approach to doing this we were in palo alto in a place called scratch after we had met a few times and I had learned about seven hours with him and the team at NASA about space and the challenges they faced. I said, because of frustration, you want to know how I would do it? And he said, yeah. And I drew out this four-phase approach. We're still using it today. I outlined why it would work, how it would work, who would pay for it, what was involved. And he looked at me and said, no one's talking like this. And he said, you need to go to this event. You need to participate in this. And I said, I'm not a space person. I really don't care. I mean, I am interested in it. I like Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica and I like sci-fi, but I'm not a space fanatic. I don't look to the stars. He threw a long story again. I'm not going to share it here. It's going to be on other, uh, other mediums. I got involved. And part of the reason I got involved was I had a different narrative. I wanted to use space and getting to the moon and getting us there faster as a means to change how we live on Earth for all species, which I always said it was a small project and people had to start convincing me to stop saying it's a small project. And so I don't want you to stop. That's why you're on the program. What I need to be able to, I or we, or when I say I, it's just me saying mentally, I need to get my mind around, it's not an egotistical I, I need to get my mind around what you've described, which I, I absolutely love, Jeffrey. I absolutely love it. Yet I want to find that that bridge 
it is not the people in the spaces you're talking to who are important and it's not the narrative that you're using to the people who are not in the space that's going to be understood it's it's a completely different positioning and so project moon hut the majority of people are working with us the majority of them are not space people which is really ironic they are people engaged in uh saving the oceans and people involved in saving the rhinoceros or the elephants there are people involved in social displacement there are people involved in uh mass extinction and climate change people who care about completely different objectives than the space industry and they're the most difficult for me to talk to because they they don't see it the same way however however the age of infinite series when people tell me that they've listened to it they say how did you get all these big names jeffrey manbar is going to be on in the next few days manbar and he is a big name he does a lot of work with the international space station so i'm not trying to talk to the people you are jeffrey and i want you to keep on talking maybe to me what i want to do is understand this because in project moon hut we have three pillars and, and the reason i'm pushing so hard is we have alliance development community engagement and there's governance coordination and it, it i said to my wife Lori last night i said i felt like i had understood it i knew where i wanted to go but talking with you yesterday solidified so many things that i've been thinking about for five years so i'm on your side I don't want you to stop. I need to better understand it. And I'm still not there. So can you help me again? And people who are probably listening are going to laugh at this. Can you help me again? How and who do I get engaged in this? Uh, the, people, the, people I, this the, the people I would get engaged in, and as I said, it's still, it's still the same audience. It's the people who feel completely disenfranchised by the status quo. And I think, but I they think have to have the, capital and I think resources. The best audience, I think the best audience are the people who like, you know, AOC and Bernie Sanders, uh, the people who have, you know, people who are rejecting, you know, we don't have capitalism. You know, I know that. So the people who are rejecting whatever the current economic model is and want a new paradigm. And, okay. uh, and I think that I think I think this message uh, would resonate to them. You know, right now, okay, there's no so audience speaking to them. There's nobody speaking to them. But I think that's the right audience that we would resonate in. The people okay, who love perfect. That's Sanders, a great start. So I think those are the people who are really looking for something very, very different for the status quo. You know, you have, okay. you, you, have, you, have, you have the people on the, you know, I don't like to use all right, but you have the Trump supporters. It's not that they're so, it's not that they're so upset with the status quo. They want to tweet so they're heard more. It's the Bernie supporters who sit back and have said, you know, and, and, and look at most of the young people. Unemployment rate is very high. They can't afford a home. They can't get a mortgage. They don't have a good credit score. You know, so they look at their futures and their futures are very, very bleak. You know, so they're looking for complete paradigm shift. So you have to go to the people who are looking for a complete paradigm shift because I think many of them have a pretty open mind. Um, uh, it's and, funny and that I you're think, saying that. And I, think, it's, and I think that's the audience. Okay, so Project Moonhut, the book we're writing, is all about paradigm shifting. 
So we've already been writing this. So it's not as if you're saying something new. It's all about paradigm shifting. So that's fantastic. Now you've, you've brought me down into this group. However, or in addition to, you've narrowed it down and you've said the people who are disenfranchised, the people who don't have money, they, they can't afford a home. There's an unemployment rate between the ages of uh, 18 to 35. All of that we understand, but that audience doesn't have discretionary income and the ability to wait and sit. So let's move up the value chain. Let's move up to you, people you know, who you, are... You know, I, don't, I don't think that they don't have any money to wait, and I think they have money to wait. Many of them are saving something, okay? So some of these people have some form of saving. They have something. It doesn't, re- you know, it doesn't require, if you, if, you get, if, you get, if you get a million people, you know, to buy one-tenth of one Bitcoin, okay, you've already had a significant impact. You know, you know why you've had an impact? One is they, they, they've now adopted and they're going to speak to other people if they have some of an obstacle spread adoption. And as a consequence of that adoption, Bitcoin will rise and it'll rise by a reasonable amount relative to anything alternative to it. So they're not going to wait. So I'm, go- I'm you're, going to you're, give you're, you something. You're, assu- you're assuming that if a million people adopt it, the price still sits at the same price. No, so, no, 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 no. No, so, no, no. no. So they don't Mine's have to different. use it. They have to see it worth more. Okay, so so Jeffrey, let's, let's play this out. And this is going to probably rock your world in a way you never thought. I, if I did, and I could do this today, if I interviewed 15 people, 20 people, and asked them, would they be willing to buy Bitcoin, if they even knew what it was, and they knew that it was at 3500 the majority of them would say, I can't afford it. I don't have $3,500 to waste or to put into it. The average individual who's not engaged in the market, let's get simplistic here, and this is this has got to be understood. The average individual who looks at the market does not know how to get on that train either, and they do not realize you don't have to buy one share of Amazon. You don't have to buy one share of um, a Berkshire Hathaway. You don't have to buy one full Bitcoin. So they, they don't participate. They can buy $10 a week. $10 but a they month. don't know that. The average person in the world, Jeffrey, doesn't understand what you understand. You have the curse of knowledge. They do not understand you can buy a percentage of a percentage. Well, that's, that's the, whole, the whole point of how, how, how Bitcoin is structured and, you know, and, 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 and it's designed is it doesn't have to be multi- – multiplication is not so relevant to the vision that's important. It's, yeah, so, it's so that's a different narrative. Into. And, and, okay, that's, so, and that's so, something that's not explained sufficiently well or, you know, or if at all. And the fact is it's not – the issue is not how many units you're buying something. is whatever you're investing in, how much that you invest accretes in value over time. Uh, so, yes. so thinking in terms of units is the wrong way to think of it. It's how much capital that I deploy and how much is it worth relative to other things you know, with the passage of time. So there should not be an obsession about how many units of Bitcoin you're buying. Uh, ultimately, it's, it's whatever you buy, how it increases over time, and that you could buy very small quantities. You could buy small and, units and of Bitcoin so, than any other alternative asset out there. So ju- but let's take that, philoso- not philosophical, let's take that behavioral conditioning and the educational knowledge that's combined People don't buy Bitcoin because they don't know they can put $10 in. They think they have to buy a Bitcoin. 
and that would be $3,500. So, so what right. you're saying is for the individual who is a young, uh, let's call them democratic socialist is the term that AOC is using. Uh, I, I think more globally when I talk. So I'm in uh, you know, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, uh, uh, Moscow, St. Petersburg, or all the way through to Copenhagen. I, I'm traveling around the world in my head to Paris and to Madrid and to, um, to Buenos Aires. What we're saying is for the individuals who are different, disenfranchised around the world, we need to educate that group of individuals to put a fractional, let's call fractional ownership, maybe that's the word, a fraction a small fraction of what they've got saved into a, do we call this an asset class? Uh, an investment vehicle that will yeah. give them a return, a possibility of return because they're not completely hopeful based upon the next, the last two years. So let's take that group out. Let's take that group out. So we educate them on that level. What would be the next group on there that you'd like to target in this AOC Bernie Sanders group? And how can they participate? someone who has more discretionary income that, but they, we want them to do something more than just purchase. Well, for them, I, for them, I would do it through a wealth management approach. For them, I basically show them quantitative studies that show that to the extent that they have a little bit more money, depending upon how many of them have a third party that's helping them manage their money, or, you know, they have a brokerage account. It's basically being able to get a large, you know, do enough, enough, you know, education with them to, um, uh, you know, to, for them to understand that they can build a better portfolio in that incorporating Bitcoin and thinking about it as an asset class. You know, because when people think about owning stocks, they don't think about trading it every day. They usually are investing in it. So anyone who's, who's looking at it as portfolio allocation, they're not going in and they're not day trading. So they expect their holding periods, you know, to be a function. And they're not looking at every specific asset in the portfolio they're looking at how the whole portfolio because this whole diversification and, and get a little closer good. to the mic please a little bit because this whole diversification is good so so you know so okay some you just sell who have a little bit of money you sell them the benefits you speak to them in the language they already understand diversification is good but they're not well diversified and here's the reason okay, why so they're not well diversified and this will be have them even better diversified Okay, so you so, use the language that they understand that's similar to the language that everyone else is knocking on the door saying this is how you should think about deploying capital. So, okay, I so think, I think I think a percentage of them will will make will 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 decide that they will embrace it. I'm not saying the majority. Okay, so will. maybe this will initially, maybe this will help maybe this will help you some. Maybe this will help you some. So let's take this term. You jumped from the individual, the the 18 to 35 year old, to putting a little bit of money and you, you move to the wealth management side. For the average person, and Jeffrey, again, I don't think you have average in this space. Wealth management is a scary ordeal because when you talk to a wealth management person, they are looking for a certain type of investment. And in, for example, a, a JP, JP Morgan, wealth management starts at $5 million. Well, I'm not talking about categories. I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about wealth management. You know, just like, just like the situation. Yeah, I, I know you're, I know the, you're not, the, but you the, use the, the private, term, you use the, the term wealth going management. Private, for the people going into private banking at a, at a, at a bank where you become those customers, $250,000 okay. and you're already getting somebody at a bank telling you, I'm building your portfolio for you. 
Yeah, but so, they, they, and, and, they're, and, they're, the and there are a whole bunch and there are a whole bunch of accountants and other industry out there that are that are geared towards ha- selling portfolio management services to people who are not millionaires. There's a big industry yes. out there to that. But th- that individ- that group of individuals need to hear this audio and they need to understand what's happening in the markets and they need to be able to con- to convince, let's use a convince or to enlighten their customers at 50,000, 100,000, 200,000. So they're not wealth management. These are investment individuals. And you do, I know you're very aware about the challenge, I think in the past uh, five years that they passed the law that if are you a fiduciary, well, let me stop back. In the United States, I don't know around the world, the United States, if you were going to a person who was a financial advisor, there is no credentials for a financial advisor. Anybody could be a financial advisor. So a financial advisor can present to an individual any option they want, even if it helps them more than it does the individual. So for example, to say you need to refinance your home, it would be beneficial because look at the rate. The reality is, is um, imp- reinvesting in your home, if you were paying twice a month and doing a bi-monthly payment and you went to a single monthly payment, actually increases your term and they make more money than you do off of the deal. So they passed this law that says if if you're a fiduciary or you have to ex, you have to expose where you are, but fiduciaries have to work on your behalf versus the others. So the challenge is we have a whole industry that's more interested in short-term gains than they end long-term gains. So we have to convince an industry. So let's take that group. So, so far we're buying and then we go to the high net worth. Again, I would say the same thing. They would buy, put a larger percentage, prove to them that there's a value added, that it will improve. Okay, I think I got that one. So tell me where in the ecosystem, not just ownership, but tell me where in the ecosystem of life do we need to push forward extremely fast and hard on the tech side, on the opportunistic side, on the number of companies who accept it. I don't know where. I'm I'm honestly looking for your advice. I'd like to know where do we push so that those individuals who are not confident with their financial advisor, who have been screwed over by their banks, who were told to go into ICOs, who are watching Bernie and AOC uh, in the states and the democratic transitions that are happening. And again, we go to Brexit on the 29th. We go to Germany and what's happening there, potentially pulling out of the EU. Some people are starting to talk about that, which would be a, a complete People don't understand the complexities of moving out and everybody having to go cross border again, uh, going into countries like China, where there's a, a rapid outflux of currency of money out of the system. My challenge is where do we push another lever that gets individuals to say, I see it and I can see the future and I don't see it myself, Jeffrey. So I really need to know what do I push? I, I think the simplest push is still the store of value and the hedge and the diversification. I think building out the tech, building out the use cases. Yes, I think if I think if people understood how they store it better, you know, weren't so scared of essentially keeping it on third-party custodian accounts or, uh, or you know, and actually held their own wallets, but held own wallets, trusting that they're not going to lose their private key. You know, that's you know, I think 
There are a lot of people working on wallets. That seems to me a barrier to entry. It's making it easy for people to buy it and easy people to hold it. So, and I, I even think, the, didn't the I don't drapers... Trust, I don't trust any... Part, part of this is that we're, not, we're supposed to not... Uh, that we're, there was, we're supposed to custodian it ourselves. The third party, we shouldn't, we shouldn't need third parties who are subject to regulation. You know, that we want to custodian it ourselves. Um, you know, because even the gold people, they can say buy gold. But Roosevelt confiscated gold, and Nixon essentially ended the convertibility of gold. So they can do that with gold. They can't stop Bitcoin. So, okay, so, uh, so it, I think, so I think let's the look people at the, let's, working let's, towards gold are just because they they don't they didn't they, they want less volatility, and they're not looking correct. at it from a portfolio. They're not looking at it from a portfolio perspective, because unfortunately, too many con artists, you know, have gotten into the business. And Herb Stein said years ago. An application of Gresham's law, you know, which is bad money forces good money out of circulation, uh, that essentially bad ideas force good ideas out of circulation. So I think what so, we really got, I think, you know, a, a couple of points that I've made in some of the in some of the blockchain conferences that I've spoken at, you know, one is I've, I've actually gone to conferences and basically said, you know, that almost everybody in the room was probably a scammer and uh, not to be insulting, but I wanted to raise their, you know, awareness. And I said, you know, I want to give you a context. Bitcoin Ray didn't do an ICO, didn't raise any money. And the, the ICO world raised billions of dollars. They can, in theory, raise an infinite amount of billions of dollars. So every day the ICO world can create a new currency. Uh, and for a while, many multiple currencies were created every day. You know, yet... You know, at, at, you know, after, after you know, at, at, before the ICO craze came out, when when first of the altcoins went up, Bitcoin had gone down to about a little over thirty percent of the total market cap of the of the ecosystem, and now Bitcoin is over fifty percent again. So in spite of all the money, so I said, look at it this way: if I if I was in a business where I say I'm in the altcoin business, and in the altcoin business, I'm I'm in the business of raising money to create to 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 beat to create better currency than Bitcoin. So when I started in this business, you know, the, the existing coins already had about one third of the, you know, already had about one third, uh, you know, had, or, or had, you know, had a small, had, had represented about two thirds of the total market cap because people were optimistic about altcoins. Then I go out and I'm heading up this altcoin universe and I raise $50 billion. And as a result of $50 billion and Bitcoin raised nothing, and after me raising $50 billion, the universe of my altcoins has now gone from being about two-thirds of the total market cap to being about 40% of the market cap. I'd say that's a pretty failed business that I deployed so much capital and, and created so little value with so much capital. Um, and I got to so That's why I got to separate out, you know, when, to conflate potential future of, of 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 the value of distributed ledger technology from hard money okay i don't want to conflate those things and i don't want to say that distributed ledger technology is, is a technology that's devoid of value because i don't believe that i believe it has value so but i want to separate out that from hard money which is bitcoin so what do you want so, hard so, money to do and, and going back to gresham's law you know, if you have if you have a lot of money in your pocket, what you spend is your worst form of money. What you hold on 
is your best form of money. You know, no people people who might love Apple stock, you know, if they had an ability to, you know, to to to, to buy a cup of coffee, if Apple stock was tokenized, and people say I have dollars in my checking account and Apple stock, you know, people ultimately what they're going to spend is what they think is the least valuable form of a token that they have. So if you tokenize right. everything, you know, and then people say wherever I can go, I whatever I own, any asset I now own is now fungible and they use this a currency. Ultimately, what people will spend is the worst form of money they have. And they'll hold and, on and to I, that. And I love that money. analogy. I, I love that analogy. So let me give you two points and maybe and maybe you can help me with this then. Uh, the first one is I did a Google search. So let's assume okay. I'm an unintelligent investor, but I invest in, let's say, unintelligent, meaning I might be a physician, I might have a half a million dollars in some rental real estate, and I want to diversify my portfolio. I just went to my financial advisor, which you, I pretty fairly trusted, but I know he's making a good living as a really nice house, goes on holiday all the time. So I type in Bitcoin stolen because I've heard a lot about Bitcoin stolen. And I personally know, I believe the Drapers had money, uh, something stolen. And the first items I see is, is your Bitcoin stolen? And CNN has, there's only 20% chance you'll get your money back. And the next one is 1.1 billion in cryptocurrency was stolen this year, and it was easy to do. The next one was another one hacked for 60 million. Another one was stolen, 240 um, million Bitcoin. So that's what I see, number one. So I want, don't address that yet. I'm going to finish with the second one. The second challenge that I have, and I'm not trying to create an argument, I'm trying to create a behavioral understanding, is that the challenge with gamification, there's a term called gamification for people who are listening in on yeah. our conversation. The gamification is to make games uh, within uh, different types of environments, whether it be business or educational or medical, so that people are more likely to participate in that uh, that process. Uh, and then they will probably learn more or experience more, whatever that what your desired outcome is. The challenge with gamification, and the reason it doesn't do as well as everybody had anticipated, the hype didn't keep the hype going, is games are so difficult to make. Look at all the board games. They're still the same board games from 75 years ago. And if you look at, uh, was it? Angry Birds, I believe, I, the, I know the founder of Angry yeah. Birds, they built, I think, 51 different games before, or 47, it was some high number, before that game took off. And I helped and worked with a Russian gaming company. They had 500 employees. They produced games for the largest gaming companies in the world. They tried to create their own games. These are people who build games all day long, and every game they built fell, failed miserably. Millions of dollars lost. So tokenization and gamification and making that work, you, I would believe, based upon our conversations, you believe that's not an easy thing to do uh, because you have to have the right model at the right time and the right pieces. And then I've got this other side where I just did some research. So let's take two of those different categories. I gave them to you both at once. I know that's challenging to do often. But let's take first the media and the news and the hype and everything and an unintelligent investor. And then let's go to tokenization. Okay. Well, one, gamification, I'm, I'm very skeptical of. I know how difficult games are to make. Not that, I, not that I've ever tried to make a game, but I know the history of companies that have tried to make games. Uh, and uh, and sustain a success 
uh, and it's very, very difficult. Um, so uh, I'm, 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 I think they're more fads and they're fragile. So the whole point about Bitcoin is anti-fragile. So if in order to in order to spread it, you're relying on technology that is fragile. You know, right. you're now introducing fragility into something that's anti-fragile, and I think that's an incompatible bad marriage. Um, so I think with respect to now talking about uh, let's go to tokens and and, and, and the stolen wallets. Um, one is, you know, a lot of a lot of what's been stolen are cryptocurrencies, not necessarily Bitcoin. Um, I understand. And, and and very few wallets have been broken into. There have been exchanges broken into, and many of the exchanges have have um, have um, uh, you know have basically without any responsibility have basically ensured the losses that people had from selling coins ripped off of, of, of their of them as a custodian. So I think so far the history of people who have wallets uh, and only own Bitcoin in a wallet, there's been very little stolen. You know, you had the example of an exchange where somebody was custodian and died and nobody and they were the only ones that had the, the private key. You know, that's basically a third party holding your Bitcoin for you. You know, so I, I think, and this is hard for people to understand, and I view it as a barrier to entry. You know, and I don't like the exchange solution is let us hold your, hold your tokens because these exchanges are not really exchanges. Many of these exchanges are high-frequency trading operations. They're not making their money. Well, wasn't wasn't, wasn't Tim Draper, didn't he lose about $250 million at about $6,500 worth of Bitcoin? 2014. I don't know how he lost it. Something. I don't. I don't. I don't know if people lost it because they lost their private key. I don't know. No, this how. is Tim Draper. This is this is Tim Draper. It's, I'm I'm pulling it up right now. Crypto Slate reports that Tim Draper ha still had 250, 260 million dollars worth of Bitcoin, a sixty five hundred dollar price point, and um, let's see. No, then this is. I pulled it up. I, I know that he had something stolen. I thought it was like $20 million, but I thought there was something stolen. Oh, it was confiscated off the Silk Road or something of that nature. So there was something. I, I'm, I'm talking. I'm talking. Well, that's an exchange. I'm trying to find that's it. Because, that, that's because he wasn't keeping it himself. Okay. Um, you know, so if it was related to Silk Road, then, it, then, it, then, then he was not. Then it was associated with the collapse of Silk Road because of the government. You know, uh, going after uh, the founder of, of Silk Road. Uh, so I get, I guess, the messaging so, you're so, trying. So, to... so, so, so I think this part of this is just a lot of bad education of this. So yeah. the wallet, the wallet definitely is an impediment. You know, for people to, uh, and because right now you got to understand, everyone who's selling Bitcoin is selling it. Make it easy. Don't worry about having your wallet. We'll hold it for you. So you're basically having parties you should trust. Holding your, holding your cold coins for you. And then there are a lot of stories about some of the early people who had it, didn't pay attention. And for most people, it's kind of difficult to do what's necessary to secure your own wallet. So I think if you're talking about an area where tech needs to be improvement, it's in the area that any person who's not tech savvy, you know, can easily buy a Bitcoin. Uh, and not necessarily buy it from a, from a uh, you know, from an exchange, just for people to be able to transfer peer to peer, you know, in a way that how they're each holding it. As I said, I would I would like to, you know, like essential comparable to Samsung Pay or Google Pay or Apple Pay, 
you know, I'd like to be able to go to somebody with, you know, the, the codes, you know, be able to transfer it instantaneously where how we're doing it is encrypt, encrypted in exchange and each going into our wallets and they're each secure and we, and, and, and it's very easy for us to do that. So, um, uh, I, I go, in my mind, and, and I think, and, 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 and I think building a really truly decentralized exchange really makes Bitcoin, you know, unstoppable because then people can uh, more unstoppable in a sense because now it makes it easy to facilitate transactions without intermediary. It's just if you think about, you know, if you think about if somebody built a platform called uh, Uber but put everything out as a uh, um, you know open source. So now you have this open source code called Uber, and now you're having drive. Now you're having, now you're having this platform that drivers and passengers are matching each other, but you have no controlling authority in in, in, in between that transaction, and they weren't really connecting, connect, collecting any fees associated with it, but they but they are basically getting compensated for preserving the history of records. So they're record keeping for everybody, uh, and they're getting compensated for that just that record keeping function. But ultimately, they're not really matching the people because Uber doesn't match the people. Uber just provides the platform for people to find each other. So if we had an Uber for Bitcoin, you know, where people could basically just find each other, uh, you know, to in- to transact, to uh, transact yes. then that 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 so would then a- facilitate movement. You know, of, of, of you know, people being able to buy and 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 transact and do anything you know that they want to do with the Bitcoin and have it be something as easy as an app on their phone, but an app that provides them the security that they know some, nothing is going to get stolen. So I think I think that's the type of tech you know that that's needed that that still that doesn't exist yet, even though there are apps, wallet apps that are on the mobile devices, but most people are not who are somewhat sophisticated are not keeping their coins on a, uh, on a, on a mobile wallet because those they understand are vulnerable. You know, that people are doing so, these SIM swaps that they're it, hacking. And so there's been a lot of effort to basically steal coins that are, that, that are on people's mobile devices. It, so I think, I think that tech we need, we need, a, we need an advance on so that it, there's that it a, helps spread there's a, spread. there's an interesting analogy in my going through my head and I, and so I'm, I, and I'll move forward past it. When you described what you had described, it went back to the 1930s and the Great Depression, where you're saying that these organizations are holding your crypto or your Bitcoin or whatever it may be. They're being held by somebody else and the banks collapsed and the money disappeared. Uh, we've seen banks collapse and challenges with that. We've seen organizations collapse. And the hard thing in my mind, I, I then went to the euro and said, how was the euro backed and how it was created into one currency? You probably know the history. I don't. And then I said to myself, OK, we still take Bitcoin and translate that into U.S. dollars. That tends to be the conversion that people talk about because dollars are the what individuals that I've spoken to. And the reason they use the dollars because the dollar is a relative term to what the Bitcoin is. And what we're trying to do is saying the, do- the, the, the currency is the currency. The dollar is the, the Bitcoin is the Bitcoin. The dollar is the dollar. The one is the one. Uh, the, the pound is the pound or whatever it may be. And we're saying that this has to fit into a different space. So I, I agree with you that what needs to happen is to, to have a 
I'm not going to call it a central bank because you used a better term, but a central connectivity network that allows individuals who do own and want to participate in the transaction of moving and utilizing Bitcoin, utilizing a currency, are able to find in the in the number that or I, holding when I think or just I, holding it or just holding, or holding. It securely. Right. At, right. I use the number all the time when I'm strategizing. I always start with 7.5, and that's 7.5 billion people on the planet. I always say, can it work for 7.5? And then I say, within those sets, there are subsets and groups using some type of my own network analysis, bringing it down and saying, within the 7.5 billion, with the people who own Bitcoin, how do we get those individuals to be able to expose themselves or willing to freely or not freely, not give the information, do give the information enough that they can be able to do transactions with them, whether it be for products or services, whether it be for investment vehicles, whether it be whatever it may be. And I'm going to throw this out, even though it's going to be live and other people are going to hear it. There's a good friend of mine, Bill Kalman. I'm going to introduce you to he's a an unbelievable uh, amazing individual i think you'll get along and you'll be able to talk in in levels that i probably will have to curl up into a ball to be able to under and just hide under the table and i think that there are places that if we worked on building this this which i'm going to tell you is all part of project moon hub it's built into our system but i never thought about it this way into the platform we want to build and I've outlined it all. So when you see it, you'll say, oh, my God, this would do this. I think we just got to a point through this dialogue that I wanted to get to is how do we move this forward? And I don't want to keep everybody on the line and I don't want to keep you on the line forever. I just felt I needed to get to a point. This is me. I need to get to a point so I understood it enough that I can take your narrative, convert it into a narrative, understand how individuals can play within this space which is one, which is a very, very low level. But to expose the ecosystem, to expose the ecosystem to capabilities is what's missing in this system the way I see it. So I can go right now and use my Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and I can use PayPal, I can use um, uh, uh, Alibaba, Tencent, I can use my Chinese currencies here, I've lost for words. I can use my currency wherever I want to go. And therefore, I know if I walk down the street and I go to a 7-Eleven, which is across the street from my apartment, I can use multiple forms of currency to pay what I would like to pay. If I go to, say, Martin, or if I go to Fiji or Bali, I can use, I know I've got money that I could use there. Today, I don't know that if I had Bitcoin. I don't know that. So therefore, I'm less All you're you're talking about money... It's for its use for consumption purposes, not for saving purposes. I do so, think that a lot so of individuals I think, say, I think, if I save it, can I use it? I know you don't. But if one, I is, may... one, one is there a lot. One is the question is, is that most people's savings they don't use, except they might want to convert it back into something they can use. Nobody, nobody uses their Apple stock. When, when Apple goes up and they want to use the money, they'll sell their Apple stock for cash. That so they don't want to use their assets, you know. They either borrow against them, which you can do now with your Bitcoin. If you if you want to but, use your yeah, Bitcoin, yeah, you can borrow you're, against you're it. Making... So for any for any other asset that people own, for any other store of value, not a means of payment, you know. You gotta again remember what Adam Smith said: with something as good 
for use and exchange is not necessarily for good use. So it depends yeah. upon what its use case is. Is the use case is for exchange or payment? So uh, you know. So so, so let, so let, you're, let you're, me let me break keep, this you down. Keep going back. You keep going back to something being a I, good money. I I and go again, to use money, for you want to spend. You want to spend your worst money. That's what you're going. That's what you want to get rid of. You want to get rid of yes, that but, on the margin will go up least in value. And what you want okay. to hold is what will hold the value. What you'd like to do Je- is one, one day if you ever have an opinion that what you hold is, is not going to go up in value as much as something else, then you want that to be as liquid as possible because you want to convert it into something that you can then spend. Because okay. right now so, the so, government so. restricts what you can spend and tokenization would solve that problem. If basically every asset became a currency, you know, then basically we can always go out and say whatever we hold, basically we can make a decision to almost spend any form of anything. Any Basically, we can create a world that everything's fungible. So that way we have so, market so, prices on everything real time because people are constantly making decisions about, I don't believe this is a good on the margin. This is not going to go up in value as much as the other. So I can easily convert it to something that I can trade and that I can buy with and use as a means of payment. So we okay, shouldn't so, have so, the, so, the concept so. of the concept of the government creating legal tender and forcing you to hold their currency is really a relatively new form of it's, it's, it's basically it's a new form of government wanting to control power. There's, there's no natural law that says that the necessarily bartering has to be has to be inefficient. Bartering where there's a lot of technology involved is not inefficient. It's people making decisions on whatever I own. I'd rather own something else than I want to own. Other people might want to own what I have. And there's nothing inefficient about voluntary exchange. So, so there Jeffrey, be no so artificial so, constraints so, to it whatsoever. So I, what I was doing in my mind when I made that statement, and remember, I'm not an unintelligent individual looking at this, I'm coming at it from a very high level, is I came at it and said, the first people I thought about was in the world today, at least in the United States, the wealth is handle, uh, is held, by, by and large, I would believe, by an older generation. So China's going to have 430 million people in the next 15 to 20 years who are going to be elderly. In Russia, 30 million people will die approximately. They're going to lose 30 million within the next 20 years. Europe is going to lose 50 million people. The United States is, if we took away, Trump has kind of changed the numbers when it comes to the migration of other people into the country. It used to be that there was a, about a zero gain because we'd have a lot of influx from immigration, especially from Mexico. Those numbers might change, but there's a there's a, an, a growing population around the world. So an individual who is 40 years old, who has some discretionary income, who wants to put it in, is saying, how can I convert it? And you gave me an answer, which I had not thought about, is that you're saying you put it into the Bitcoin, but when you want to use it, you transfer it to another currency. And I had always thought of making the currency Bitcoin like a dollar, making it because that's the way I understand it. I see a dollar and I see Bitcoin. I see them as currencies. And I had thought that I would take my dollar and I go to the bank and I use it. Now, stock to me is not currency. Stock is an investment vehicle. And now you're saying just use this as an investment vehicle, but if you want to use it, transport it over into a currency, whatever that may be, euro, pound, 
uh, peso, and then you use it in that currency, but you keep your Bitcoin in wherever it stands. And I don't right. think even that narrative is well understood. No, it isn't. And, and again, that's uh, I'm trying to get my mind around how to help what you're saying move forward. And the challenge is, with so many complex components going into the, the, the historical uh, components, and I'm not a big history per person, is I want to move forward. And when I move forward, I'm looking at this, this middle of the road misunderstanding about how, what decentralization means. Uh, I have this misunderstanding of how the tech works and why money is disappearing, even though it's in crypto, it's not in Bitcoin. I don't understand how it functions because this guy who invented it doesn't even show his face. We don't know who he is. So he just made Irrelevant. it, which is nothing. Irrelevant. It, it, but there is no Jeffersonian papers. It was created. However, for some people, there is that. We did this under, misunderstood. And then there's the utilization of it. And what you just gave me was the uh, another picture is not to look at it as an investment, look at it as an investment vehicle and and a place to hold. But whenever you want to use it, you convert it to whatever currencies within that that realm. Yet I was thinking through this whole thing is that Bitcoin becomes the universal currency so that we don't have to have all these other currencies. And then we can use that to help democratization or uh, the, the decentralization and the changing of human uh, of human transactions. But you, you don't, for that, is, for that, you, you, for tokenization, you know, anyone, if, if anyone can create an ecosystem where that token represents the value of that ecosystem. You know, that would right. be like what the regulators call a security token. So, you know, so yeah. that's just another way. We, we, sh we should be able to exchange anything freely for value. Uh, and essentially, we should be able to determine, you know, so basically right now what we have is we have a whole bunch of assets that we hold until we feel we need them to change it. And the worst form of money is what we use for our daily consumption purposes. I have, I have yeah. a chart here. From 2009, okay, from 2009 to today, car insurance rates are up about 60%. Hospital services up about 60%. Education textbooks up 50%. College tuition up about 45%. Prescription drugs up about 40%. Medical care services up about 40%. Housing up about 30%. Okay, wages in nominal terms up about, uh, over the last 10 years, uh, about a little under 20%. Um, so if you have to think about if I'm holding, if I'm holding treasury bills uh, or anything yes. other really risky assets, most of the things that I'm buying or saving for, I'm getting poorer. So, you know, yes. so, so in other words, I'm incentivized to just go into debt and and hope the government will pay for all these other things because I, I, with quantitative easing i get nothing on my money unless i'm the one percent so if i'm the one percent you know I'm, I'm i'm talking to blackstone and doing all these deals and i'm the financial creditor anyone anyone else is taking a huge risk on their life on betting on the stock market 
And if they don't bet on the stock market, all they have is holding cash or putting their money in the bank and getting no interest for it and still paying taxes on whatever small interest they are getting. And so essentially every year they're getting poorer. So the whole point of getting savings is being able to be able to consume more in the future, not to consume less in the future. So what you want to have is you want to convince people that if they want to have more purchasing power, you know, in, in the future, they have more options than just buying stocks. Because that's really, right now what we have is people buying stocks or people buying real estate. The unfortunate thing about real estate, where I think a lot of that, a lot of real estate value is going to be destroyed, is that the real estate game is a leverage game. So if the cost of leveraging ever changes dramatically, real estate collapses. It doesn't go down a little bit. It collapses. So, um, uh, you know, and, if, you and look at, if, year, if you look at what happened, real estate has not what always been the best investment. Well, over time, over long periods of time, real estate has not been a good investment. Right. That's what I just said. Uh, and, it's not and, good. And, 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 and if, if, if you look at real estate in special markets under special circumstances, they've had brief periods of time where they've had a lot of appreciation. But like, right, you know, the market that performed best, you know, after the crisis, the super high end in, in, in New York, that has, that has now been going down two years in a row. So yeah. what people have is trying to hold as good stores of value. And, 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 and in many of the zip codes in the United States, Real estate has seen no appreciation since 2007. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, so it's not a place, it's not a place, is a bad, is a bad form of investment. So this because most people do not have sufficient asset classes. And that's also one of the other benefits of tokenization is creating new asset classes for people. Um, and if everything becomes a token, and if you think about how we can divide tokens into very small quantities, you know, what if, what if, you know, what if people wanted to own a piece of the Metropolitan Museum of Art? You know, essentially, why doesn't, instead of begging for money, uh, instead of begging for money and, uh, you know, for people to contribute, why doesn't whatever all the pieces they have that the, that the museums own, why don't they tokenize them? Why don't they have people go in and buy small pieces of, you know, claims against the artwork and you come up with some process for appraisals and then people can trade the tokens based upon whatever they think a claim to that art is worth. And now the museums have a lot of money because they've received the value for the token, and that supports the museum. And everybody has the incentive to want to preserve the value of that art that now that owns that stuff. We can we completely restructure. I, I, I went to one company, and I suggested to them a, a gold mining company that had a lot of gold reserves, is I thought they should tokenize their... Um, you know, their, their, their mines, not gold. They should tokenize the mine. That basically they should go, the only deal with a major third parties who were contributing significant value and basically ex- exchange what their service were they're providing for a claim against the mine. And that basically, you know, if we think about like gold, since most gold is held as a store of value, not for commercial purposes, 75% of all gold gets extracted, it gets made pretty, and then it gets put underground. And the reason why we have to make it pretty is we want it to look nicer and we want to be able to differentiate it so we know which one is ours, so we can establish ownership claims. You know, but if I, but basically if I tokenize, you know, reserves where you have we where you have very precise measures of measuring, you know, the content in a mine, you know, people can go on, I can tokenize probable reserves, possible reserves. 
you know, what, you know, all the levels of proven reserves, you know, and then, then people say, I don't need to, you know, because right now what are people doing is they're extracting it and then they're putting it under the ground. No need to extract it anymore. I just tokenize the content that exists. And then I have third parties that go in and validate each year the contact that exists. And then if people sit back and say, I want to, I want to have probable reserves. I want to make sure that now I want to go and extract them. They're going to know the economics associated with attempting to invest more money in converting, you know, probable reserves or possible reserves into proven reserves. So now we have observations on the valuation of the mineral content in each mine, and we have people able to train it, trade it, and we have people to have claims against value without ever lift, without ever removing it from the mine. So there's so many things that's that we can do with tokenization that we can't do today. And that's a, so that's a very different issue than just Bitcoin, you know, as a form of savings and potentially one day as a dominant means of payment because people will reject everything else. And if everybody now owns Bitcoin and it's distributed throughout everyone, it won't have any speculative value anymore because if it's broadly held, the price won't go up anymore. And at that point in time, it probably will not be a good form of savings. It'll then, it'll then morph into a good payment. For the time being, until adoption grows, it's a good, it's a good investment. When it's adoption investment gets, as, as adoption grows, it'll, it'll, it'll morph into a good form of payment. And at that point, at the point in time, you're right. It could be the global currency. And at that point, it's likely to be very stable and not be a good form of investment. And people want to start spending it rather than one, they'll no longer have the incentive to hold it anymore. You know, it'll well, go up to a value it, it, that that'll be better right. for it to spend than to hold. So I, I, uh, I'm still, I'm still fixated on yesterday and the, the transition of power from governments. And, and I have to, you and I are going to have some, have to have some more conversations to be able to help me bridge that gap and, uh, and understand how we can make, some of and again, I, I'm not a utopianism person. The, I believe the, that. The, the, the same thing. If, if we have if we have the all AOC crowd, the Bernie Sanders crowd, you know, all that crowd decided that they stopped saving in in fiat. Uh, yeah. Then then you then you would have the financial system in panic. You'd have the government in panic uh, because ultimately Bitcoin would rise a lot relative to dollars. More people would use Bitcoin as an asset class. So would essentially, yeah. if there's enough adoption, there's cascading. And now governments understand that people no one longer hold its money because of their fiscally irresponsible. So the people now made a bet saying, if you don't get your house in order, we've made a decision not to hold the, mo- the money that's a function of us trusting you. So once, yeah. the, once people penalize the government for its distrust of government, then government is going to have to change because the market will force it to change. Right now, the market's not forced it to change. You know, the market and, did and, force and it again, to change. We have to, we, have to, we have to talk globally. We have to talk about the EU, the Brexit, the, the uh, currencies from all these other countries. So I'm trying to look on a global scale. How do we get a different type of paradigm shift that's not just asset classes and investment opportunity, but ties into your belief that governments are not servicing the people and that the people need to pay for services that they deem viable or they can leave 
and go to another government where that government is servicing them. And there and there's a, a much, much more even distribution of wealth based upon services offered. I think it was the Uber example. You can get more uh, capital out of working for one company versus working for Uber, because Uber takes a large portion of it and they, they have the power. So I'm trying to tie those pieces together. And, and because we've gone three hours, I've never done this before. Uh, I, I, Jeffrey, I don't even want a summary of this. I don't want the last words on this. Oh my God. Uh, this was a, 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 I believe, I hope you do too. This was a good conversation. Yes. Yes. Very good question. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm, uh, I, I do want to continue. I do want to connect us with Bill. I do want to go over Project Moonhot with you. There's so many things that I think that your, your unbelievable understanding of a space that I have never really been able to get my mind around uh, is, astonishes me, and I love it. So I'm looking forward to more. I, I will say that anybody who is stuck through this, I, I do hope that while listening, you had the pleasure that I did of experiencing uh, Jeffrey and and the 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 insight that he has been toying playing trying to move trying to create uh, to make the world uh, a different place I, uh, the word better is to me very relative uh, if you are a terrorist and you want to get rid of the infidel that is that's a better world for you if you are a person who likes to have more than somebody else that's better for you so the word better to me is a relative term i will use the word different world and i appreciate jeffrey you spending what sounds like part of your life's ambition from what i know of you outside your life's ambition to change the the world so that it is a different place for those who participate in the future. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. My pleasure. Thank uh, you. For the, for everybody, I did say that at the end of the last podcast, I will throw it out again. I'd love to connect with you. If you might even have a program you think that would be valuable, you could reach out to me at David at davidgoldsmith.com. You please share this with other individuals. Uh, I'd love to see this out there. I think this is a, for me, it was a very interesting conversation. I hope you felt the same way. So you can also reach me at Instagram at Mr. David Goldsmith. I say it's Mr. Someone else created that name for me. I've always been challenged with it. Can't find a new one. Uh, you can reach me at Twitter at David Go uh, at Goldsmith. And then there's LinkedIn. You can look me up. Uh, you'll see that there's the Redefining Tomorrow. There's the Age of Infinite. There's a, another series we're going to post about 150 interviews, which includes Zig Ziglar and everybody else. And that is 